Hey, it's Puneet and this is Galata. I am attempting a new format for the next 10 episodes where I'll be taking an autobiography of an Indian founder and diving deep by studying, researching, doing everything that I do for a physical guest, but for the autobiography. And at the end of my reading, I'm going to take all the highlights and notes and I'm going to make an episode out of it. This is the first of that kind. Without much ado, let's dive into it. Born in a middle-class trading family, Kishore Biani started his career selling stonewashed jeans to small shops in Mumbai. Years later, with the launch of Pantaloons, Big Bazaar, Food Bazaar, Central and many more retail formats, he redefined the retailing business in India. Incidentally, Kishore Biani's objective is to capture every rupee in the wallet of every Indian consumer, wherever they are. An investment banker living in a South Mumbai locality or a farmer in Sangli. As large business houses enter the retail space, Kishore Biani is not just concentrating on retail but aiming to capture the entire Indian consumption space. From building shopping malls, developing consumer brands to selling insurance, he is getting into every business where a customer spends her money. Can he make it? It Happened in India features not just his words, but insights and anecdotes from people who joined his roller coaster ride. Academicians, former colleagues, investors, business partners, family members and college batchmates. The foreword of this book really baffled me because it's the daughter Ashni Biani and she wrote something that just captured the person in a very interesting way. As the idea to write this book emerged, I constantly questioned and argued with my father about the purpose of writing the book so soon. I felt that the story had only just begun and there could be even greater times in the future to share it. But after much discussion, I now understand the relevance of communicating the story to the potential India of tomorrow. I realize that India needs role models who will make it believe that it can happen right here in this country. My generation needs figures that we do not epitomize but relate and connect with. We need the story of ordinary people who have made extraordinary things happen during our times. This book is indeed very special. It is special not only because it is a story of my father, but also because it dares me and my generation to dream. It gives me the courage to aspire and believe that we can create and change things. This simple story of a dukandar who learned while doing makes me believe that with conviction and self-belief, no dream is distant. And to conquer one's dream, one only needs passion. The musings presented here are no images of perfection. In fact, the experience of reading the book may leave you a little bewildered. For example, Dad has always believed in the power of spending instead of saving. He strongly believes that the more you spend, the more you aspire and therefore earn. Who? And the mantra, rewrite rules and retain values may puzzle you further. I hope this book will probe, perplex and provoke you what I promise to make at the foreword. The book jumps right in the middle at the Sabse Sasta Din, which was popularized by Big Bazaar. And this was the brief he gave to his team. It reads, create a day without a season that truly belongs to us every year. The Republic Day was quite close and it seemed to be ideal. I suggested the catchphrase 26 co 26 and thus the target of 26 crores of sale 
in one single day was set. A feat and a number not projected by any mathematical equation, but a number born simply out of a desire to unlock our minds and to do something truly extraordinary. That is how Kishore Vianney usually thinks. There isn't much mathematical calculations <laughs> behind it, but it just his idea of capturing the imagination of his team and the masses that will be that will really come across in this episode. This Sapsia Sasta Din was actually based on a lot of thought that I admire. And here's a highlight that really brings this forward. There are a couple of emotions that determine shopping behavior. The most fundamental of them are greed, altruism, fear, and envy. Greed drives the customer to purchase more than what he or she needs. A wide range of options, better products, and lower prices generate that increased desire to purchase. Often, a customer would consider it a good opportunity to buy more than what she needs and to gift others as well. Higher purchase is also driven by the fear that the current price offer may not be available for long and so the product has to be purchased right away. And envy sets in when one sees others buying and making the best out of a deal. Sabse Sasta Din was successful because we were able to effectively capitalize on all of these emotions. The prices were great but they were on offer only for a day. Customers noticed Everyone else, friends, colleagues, neighbors, heading to Big Bazaar and they didn't want the opportunity to pass by. With all these emotions working in complete harmony, the stage was set for a huge response. And beyond the thought process of these emotions that was used in the Sapsi Sasta then was how he looks at the Indian audience. But before I tell the Indian audience, the quote at the start of this chapter is fascinating. Sometimes we... A nation of billion people think like a nation of million people. Uh, A.P.J. Abdul Kalam shared that quote. Now, he looks at the Indian population in a slightly different way. Uh, his way of looking at demographics is different. We divide India into three sets. India 1, India 2 and India 3. These groups can be understood as the consuming class, the serving class and the struggling class. Our studies show that India 1 or the consuming class constitute only 14% of the country's population. Till recently, all modern retail formats including Big Bazaar were attracting customers mostly from this segment. Most of these customers have a substantial disposable income and form a part of what are usually called the upper middle class and lower middle class. The idea of Sapsya Din was to expand from the consuming class to the serving class, which is fascinating. He goes deeper into this, like India too, or the serving class includes people like drivers, household helps, office peons, liftmen, washermen. These are the people who make life easier and more comfortable for the consuming class or India 1. For every India 1, there are at least three India 2s, making up almost 55% of the population. But India 1 doesn't care to pay India 2 too well. Um, <laughs> think of how many times you have got a salary increment and how many times your driver has got an increment. While their numbers are huge, they still have very little disposable income to spend on buying aspirational products and services. And India 3 is the struggling class, um, which lives mostly hand-to-mouth, extreme conditions, cannot afford to even aspire for a better living. So um, that is something that can't be tapped yet. Because the needs can't be really addressed by the existing business models. But India 1 and especially India 2 is something that we will go really deep in this book. In fact, this book is filled with insights about Indianness, Like this one insight that just came up. Um, India 2 moves and finds a lot of comfort in crowds. 
they are not individualistic. There is a definite need for them to do new things only if they see someone from their community doing it. So, while he is designing aisles, he's going to use this insight so beautifully. I can't wait to tell you that in a bit. But let's move ahead to the next bit. He makes a very valid point where in India, most of us are not prepared for the consumerism that is setting in this country. We really still, this book was written in 2007, but we still underestimate how many people are going to fly and that's why our airports get jammed. We underestimate how many people will speak on phones for how many billions of minutes and then for, therefore our cell phone networks are always congested. We are not prepared for the force of consumerism which is unfolding. He talks about his way forward. Our growth will be based not on physical assets we have but on the ideas and solutions that we generate to capture the imagination of the Indian consumer. That sort of underlines all his efforts capturing the imagination of Indian consumer. Kishore Biani or KB like everyone calls him in the company and especially in the book. And you will see more and more of his obsession with this as we tread forward. This is how he looks at India. What sets India apart is the diversity and uniqueness of the Indian market. On any given week, somewhere some of our Countrymen are celebrating a festival about which most of us may not have a single clue. The rice we eat, the apparel that our women wear, the dialects we speak change every 100 kilometers in our country. There are also a lot of conflicting trends and paradoxes that are evident across the country. Logic and emotions, individuality and social feeling, poverty and affluence, life and lifestyle, value and indulgence and the past and the future simultaneously coexist in India. All these paradoxes converge to make India what it is. But how do you serve an India like this at scale is a question that I had while I was going in the book. And despite the paradoxes, there are two very strong trends that Kishore Biani observes. Underlying these trends, I feel, are two undercurrents that are sweeping through young India. Confidence and change. Confidence that lends itself to self-belief and a total lack of inhibitions to achieve any dream and a willingness to change or the desire to rise above one's origins. And it is the young generation of Indians who are playing a pivotal role in driving these trends. For example, he, he further elaborates, My parents were born in a nation that was about to gain independence. I was born in a nation that was experimenting with socialism. The new generation has grown up in a liberalized economy and has seen India winning in every arena be it in business, information technology, sports or beauty pageants. They have been witness to the era where India is emerging as a global powerhouse. The current generation, which is us, the current generation is therefore simultaneously more proud about being Indian and more modern when it comes to their lifestyles than their predecessors. In a sense, they are far more confident of their place in the world. This is a generation that feels that everything is within their reach and aspires for it. And this is true for everyone, whether they live in large metros or small towns. He has a 3C theory that really encompasses this and goes like this. Confidence and change bringing in an unprecedented era of consumption. 3C theory, which is confidence and change bringing in an unprecedented era of consumption. And that is why we see a humongous increase in consumption across the space. And What's important with KB and for us listeners is something that I quote next. We have to understand, interpret, attract and deliver to the Indian consumer in a way 
that takes into account the Indian context. The concept of Indianness has to be understood if one wants to attract the maximum number of consumers. When we started this company, we believed in this code value of Indianness. For us, Indianness is not about Swadeshi. It is about believing in the Indian way of doing things. We wanted to understand and interpret India in a way that no one else had done. We wanted to rewrite the rules of catering to Indian consumers. Our stated objectives from day one was rewrite rules, retain values. Whew. Let's dive deeper. When Kishore Biyani started off, um, it's fascinating that a lot of people did not um, appreciate or acknowledge it. In fact, it was encouraging to find that most people were dismissing us. It was a proof of the fact that we were doing things truly differently. I chose to become an entrepreneur because I wanted to do things my way. Changing my belief and my way of working simply because that's what others wanted was never an option. So many of us, including me, want to build things on our own because, because I, I want to do things my way. And I don't want to change based on others or what they perceive as good or bad or successful or not. Here's how one of the first early backers of Kishore was ICICI Ventures and the managing director Renuka Ramnath describes him really succinctly. He's not like the traditional guy who's very articulate, comes into a meeting surrounded by three MBAs and makes slick PowerPoint presentation. This man will come dressed like a dukandar, alone with no airs, no presentations and operates from part intuition and part gut feel. He has tremendous courage of conviction and backs these with phenomenal speed and personal energy. And he doesn't look for endorsement from 20 other people. I think this is one of the reasons why Renuka Ramnath from ICICI Ventures backed KB very early on. And it's not really about the model or the results, but more because of the conviction they saw, they saw in KB. Way back in the early 90s, when the first retail chain came up in Mumbai, we used to be a small trouser manufacturer. Uh, we had approached them to that point to stock our brands. Since they stocked mostly foreign labels in, the, in those days, they flatly refused to keep our brands. I think that was the day we started to explore whether we could open our own retail chain. Many years later, the owners of this retail chain once again refused to give space to our store at a sprawling mall that they built in Mumbai. This incident further prompted us to explore the option of setting up a real estate fund that could invest in development of retail real estate. Again, doing things his own way. He loves being put down. <laughs> he has this way of challenging things when somebody says no. And he doesn't look for endorsement. Here's something he tells. Anyway, we never looked for endorsement from people within the industry. For us, it was the customer who mattered. We believe it is the customer alone who decides whether we are successful or not. Neither we nor our competitors or investors can decide our success from what we should sell and how to sell it to which formats are successful and which are not. Everything is decided only by customers. So the primary rule of a business is that the customer is always right. Any product, any format, any strategy that the customer disapproved of was changed or closed down. Later in this book, when I'm going to talk about how he explored and he had a criteria for franchisees to be given out. He took this customer obsession to a whole different level that I'll tell you in a bit. Um, he's always open to suggestions. He's, he's somebody that really observes and is obsessed about observing and learning from people. And in fact, 
women have provided some of the best insights and inputs on building a retail business um his wife and his daughters have been very pivotal in giving him open critical suggestions and feedbacks before i dive in quick aside this book is structured in a way in which kishore is narrating along with it there are a lot of other folks um stakeholders team members investors family members that are constantly chiming in their perspectives and thoughts and kishore bian is also reflecting on it and expanding on what they have shared so a lot of times i will mention specific people i'll of course establish them for you to visualize and understand the entire uh, story in a comprehensive way but that is something that i want to uh, outright tell you that there will be quotes from other people in this as well this is about his obsession with customers hear this out till date most of my sundays are spent outside shopping malls watching human behavior watching people behave and interact with others and their surroundings is probably my second biggest passion the first of course being hindi films i have tried to make everyone in my organization an observer of customer behavior and now some of the best business ideas come from our colleagues at the shop floor they are trained to study and understand customer needs my job is to transform these observations into actionable ideas and that is how obsessed kb is with observing customer behavior some part in the book somebody tells that it is scary how deeply kb understands his customers uh, i'll i think i've highlighted that <laughs> i'll read it out fully then um here somebody else telling how decisive kb is um once he has taken a decision he moves fast yet at the same time he is always looking around for learning and is humble enough to seek it and here's what an early investor and a professor from mumbai shivanand mankekar observed about kb which again gives me insight about how he looks at the retail business the key to success in the retail business in india was firstly getting the model right and then scaling up quickly before the competition began copying the model when we met kb for the first time he said retail is like riding a bicycle uphill if you stop pedaling you will slide down clearly indicating that he understood the need to scale up fast the opportunity that knocks at one's door doesn't remain there forever kb's strategy has been aggressive but he has always taken calculated risks rather than playing mindless gambles that strategy has paid off and put him way ahead of the competition now we get into the history of kb where it all started how it went about it directly doesn't start chronologically um it still jumps around so bear with me but the insights the approach and the comprehensiveness is very evident pantaloon retail was incorporated in october 1987 the company then had a different name mostly mans wear m a n z wear and could manufacture 200 trousers per day in august 1997 we forayed into modern retail and with an initial investment of rupees 30 lakh and opened a pantaloons family store in gariahat kolkata four years later in 2001 we opened the first big bazaar store subsequently we launched a number of retail formats and got into different businesses in the consumption space early on he talks about how he was impressed by sam walton the founder of walmart he says it outright where i couldn't help but get inspired by sam walton the iconic founder of the chain which is walmart i have learned some of the most enduring lessons of business from a heavily underlined and dog-eared copy of the classic made in america 
Sam Walton was the original master of rewriting rules. He never followed the existing patterns of his time. He studied the market and developed a model that truly suited the American context. Taking my lessons from him, I couldn't have blankly copied the American model for the Indian context. I really assumed going into this book, oh wait, this must be a copy of Walmart in India. But it surprised me and took me completely in a different zone when I got to know which store KB and his team obsessively studied. And I say obsessively studied, you will find it out in this episode. A store in India that they completely cut, copy, paste and scaled to unbelievable heights. And it's not Walmart. We'll get into that as well. Um, While designing our Big Bazaar stores, the core idea has been to merge the look and feel of the Mondays with modern retail features like quality choice and convenience. The Indian consumer needs an indigenous solution to her shopping needs that gives her the best value for money in an environment where she is comfortable. Each and every store in India needs to be customized after taking into account the diverse culture, tastes and preferences of every city or locality that we want to set up a store in. And that is why it can't, the Sam Walton's uh, Walmart approach can be cut, copy and pasted. Um, You'll have to make it as localized as possible. And still, um, the critiques, and this is this is where I, I'm telling you the critiques will never go. Despite solving the model for a while, here's what he says. I think we have achieved some amount of success in what we have done now. Even many of our critiques perceive us to be a serious player in the business. The number of critics hasn't changed. Their questions have. These days, I'm often asked whether I'm planning to sell off the company anytime soon. And my note is, (laughs) the critiques will never fucking go. They will always be there. There's something about observing and exposing yourself to as many folks as possible, which Kishore Biani did. And And here's another person mentioning that. He has met the rich, the famous, the dumb, the competitor's competitor, the worldly, the unworldly, the gurus, the whole goddamn world. He's open to meeting anybody who has something new to offer. What he really does is put himself in a position where he exposes himself to various people and ideates and incubates and shapes and refines, tests and challenges. What he is essentially looking for is people who can stimulate, engage and that's why I feel the more broadly you expose yourself to so many people, the more you get the time to ideate, to understand their perspectives, and to incubate stuff in your own mind, and it refines and clarifies your thinking. Another point about critique, there are critiques who say that we have been lucky to have achieved whatever we have till now. My reply is yes, we have been lucky. We were fortunate enough to be in the right business at the right time in the right country. Yes, it is true that He was at the right time in the right country in the right business, but it took him 15 years to get to that moment where he realized, oh, wait, (laughs) I am in the right business at the right time in the right country. Um, So far, it was just about uh, Upar Upar Se, but now we go really into the trenches. Here is where he really starts telling about his origin story. Um, He came from NIMBY a nondescript village in Nagpur district of Rajasthan. That's where his grandfather and his roots are from. And I, I was surprised that Nimbi is just like 117 kilometers away from where my family roots are, uh, which is in Jetaran. This really connected me even more because most dukandars that I'm surrounded with, Marbari dukandars, are very limited in their thinking. And I think that is what Kishore breaks through and builds what all he builds. He talks about how in Nimbi and in Rajasthan, there are so many fairs that happen. 
um, melas that happen and and he came to realize later that commerce is never the reason the atrium of Indian bazaars. They are more of a social melange, more of a socializing space. It's never about commerce. Um, that's a very different perspective to look at melas, especially in Rajasthan. Um, I can describe you the mela uh, held in the outskirts of the town of Nimbi, of course. I remember watching camel races, cockfights, puppet shows, folk dances, tug of war, and a host of other activities. Cows, oxen, horses, and camels were on sale. As the sun set, local folk musicians filled up the atmosphere with melodies that would resound far and wide across the tranquil desert sands. As I would realize later, commerce is never the reason the atrium of Indian bazaars. They are more of a social melange, more of a socializing space. So, his grandfather, late Bansi Lal Biani, he was the one who moved from Nimbi and came to Mumbai. In a completely new environment, he set up a clothing shop and once he started building it up, he called all his six sons to help him in the business and they were all permanently settled in about by 1950s in Mumbai. It took his grandfather about 15 years to move from Nimbi to Mumbai. And they saw through some really tough times in the business and um, he says that However, he had grown up in the deserts and wasn't one to give up easily. He started up a partnership concern and um, procured and marketed polyester knitted shirts. And around the same time, he also got a big distributorship of Ashoka Industries, which is a textile company that is based out of Nepal. So you see, the grandfather moves to Mumbai, starts up a clothing shop, gets a distributorship, and that's where the six sons join in. 9th of August 1961 is when... Kishore Biani was born. Um, he was the second son of Sri Lakshmi Narayan Biani and Srimati Godavari Biani. And the thing is, the year he was born, he, according to his family, had the perfect kundli. And my family members tell me that my horoscope was an extremely encouraging one. So they were quite sure I will be successful. Fortunately or unfortunately, I haven't yet bothered to look at that horoscope. <laughs> Um, early on, the family was settled in Borivali, and, uh, which is a northern suburb and in Mumbai. And then they moved to the Zaveri Bazaar, uh, which is where the old business districts are located in Mumbai. And then they moved to Jeevan Bihar in Malabar Hills. So it looks to me like it's a fairly well-to-do family. The business is doing well. And it is still a very uh, big joint family. He grew up among 12 cousins and siblings. And most of them went to the same school, uh, Manav Mandir High School. There are signs of him being a rebel from the early on. Um, from a fairly early age, I was completely against any religious practice or rituals and was quite open about it. The kid who had a perfect horoscope was soon turning into a black sheep of the family. I was always eager to get into an argument with my elders at the drop of a hat. This actually reminds a lot about me. <laughs> but... I'll tell you about Kishore's younger brother, Anil Biani. Uh, here's what he says about Kishore. Even as a kid, he used to act and behave differently, much to the annoyance of some family elders. His room was filled with posters of cars and cricket stars, but that was still okay, which seems okay to me as well. What really troubled others was his inclination to question every social or religious practice followed by the family. Someone had to give him a sound explanation before he would do anything religious. A particular instance that I remember is that our family used to follow an old tradition of worshipping Sitala Devi, the Hindu goddesses who supposedly prevents the dreaded smallpox disease. The ritual involved eating only cold food for a certain number of days 
and here was Kishore who would refuse to follow such a diktat. His questioning was simple. If the school textbooks say that smallpox has been fully eradicated, why still follow these rituals? <laughs> Not only would he contradict every family member's wisdom, he reveled in being the devil's advocate as well. I still remember while playing games as a kid, he would say, you can be in Ram's team and I will be in Ravan's team. And I am happy with that. He trusted his own abilities. We often played cricket by placing bets. He was ever willing to take up the opponent's challenge in spite of a weak team. Out of his own confidence, he encouraged his team members to give it their best, even if they were destined to lose the match. And then he did everything to win it. You will see this pattern repeat over and over again throughout his journey. After he finished his schooling from Manav Mandir High School, he went to HR College in Mumbai and suddenly he was exposed to a whole different world. He sort of had a cultural shock because of the diverse class and he immediately made a very large group of friends and from varied backgrounds. For a long time to come, girls were quite scarce at HR College and he would be very hesit hesitant about interacting with them. In fact, he says the closest he's come to a significant relationship during his early days in college was a girl who lived 1200 kilometers away in Kolkata, a pen friend who I always wanted to meet but haven't managed to till date. <laughs> so he talks about how his evenings were like pretty common um of a college goer, right? Spending the evening chilling out with your friends. They had their own adda, which they called as the den. And there were about four close friends, close friends who would meet and they would discuss everything under the sun. Movies, music, cricket, current affairs and sometimes business as well. Which is very common in um, colleges. You're just basically chilling. He talks really interestingly about even at a young age, while he's still in college, um, there was this wave of Dhirubhai Ambani that most of us do not know. At least those who are in, their, in our 20s, we do not realize it. But there's a huge wave of Dhirubhai Ambani in the 70s and 80s. And this is what inspired a lot of them to get into business. And it so did to KB as well. He would visit Oberai Hotel. Um, there'd be a Samarkand, Samarkand, uh, I don't know how to say it right. Samarkand restaurant that he would visit occasionally with his friends. And the reason was, the reason why I liked to visit Oberai Hotel was because I came to know that Dhirubhai Ambani came to the hotel's health club almost every other day. Even if I could get a glimpse of him, I would be overjoyed. Reliance in the early 80s had established itself strongly. I was quite fascinated by the company and its growth. I started reading about business during my college days and Dhirubhai Ambani was my first mental mentor, my personal role model. And he was one of the few businessmen he could relate to. Because he came from really modest background and still scaled through the pinnacle of business in India. Was and purely based on his own abilities was really inspiring, not just to KB but to the entire generation in the 80s. Even during his college time, he had the penchant to follow his own nose. Like he says that he, he did not want to study science, it was not his cup of tea. He didn't want to study CA, that was also too uh, exhaustive for him. Here's what he says about it. But I was willing to learn completely unrelated things that often surprised my batchmates. I learned typing, did a course in import and export of garments and joined a program run by the Silk Manufacturers Association, Sasmira. At one point, I almost decided to become a chartered accountant and even cleared the preliminary exams. But then I figured that CA coursework was too specialized and not meant for me. Rather than a specialist, I wanted to be a generalist, a jack-of-all-trades 
and master of some. He was really self-assured even during college and uh, a friend tells this, <laughs> really establishes it. Um, it could be uh, a youngster's uh, um, audacity to say that, oh, what is that? I can do much more better. But this is something that really resonated with me as well. Um, Sanjay Sheikh Sarya, he was the batchmate of uh, Kishore and today he's married to Kishore's cousin and is also a very close business associate. He says something about KB in his college days. Kishore never had a mentor as such. Um, this remains true throughout his life as well. Kishore never had a mentor as such, but the thought of starting his own business was there in his mind, probably from the second year in college. He was clear that he didn't want to join the family business. He would talk about getting into the garment trade and doing something very different. He obviously hadn't dreamed of what he is today, but he definitely had a big picture in mind. He was a keen observer and a very good judge of human beings. Even in college, he would judge people and associate or dissociate himself from them accordingly. He wasn't particularly vocal about it, but he made it clear that he didn't like loud people. But basically, he was an introvert and shy by nature, which he have established so far with his pen friend in Calcutta. The attitude to challenge everything was evident even in those days. At that time, a retail outlet in Mumbai, Chirag Din, was the most popular shop to buy shirts from. They would sell a large number of shirts every every month and he would say, what's 30,000? I can do better. He was always very self-assured, even in college. And the two topics that really caught his attention was advertising and marketing. In fact, he says, advertising and marketing as subjects always fascinated me. I keenly studied advertisements, attended marketing seminars and for a year did a course in the latter as well. Something that made a very big impression very early on um, while he was still in college and something I want to mention is his first brush with retailing was when as a teenager he visited Century Bazaar in central Mumbai. It was bigger and brighter than what is what it is today. It had low ceilings that made it seem crowded and everything was sold over the counter from vinyl records to apparels. The sheer size of the place and variety of merchandise got etched in my mind. It was probably then that I decided to create something similar or even better than this. He was a very avid observer of trend. He had a nose for trend. And one of one such trend was Disco Dandia that he observed very early on. This bit really shows me that he had the organizational wherewithal to pull something like this together. He was able to sniff a trend and then figure out a way uh, to not only just mimic that trend and um, capitalize on it, but to do it in a much more larger and grander sense. Dandia held during the festival of Dashara is a traditional Gujarati dance form. Young girls and boys dance in groups to the sound of folk music and whirl around in circles within a set area. We used to have a Dandia festival in our housing compound as well, but it was extremely monotonous and boring. So they had Dandia during Dashara and their housing compound. Uh, it was extremely monotonous and boring. Rajesh Roshan at that time was my was my favorite music composer. His music band used to play live music at a Dandia festival in Juhu. In the first year of college, one of my friends took me there and I was completely taken aback by the scale of the event. There were more young people at one place than I had ever seen and they were dancing to live Bollywood music being played by the band. The entire atmosphere was quite electric. And we had an amazing time. Then and there, I started wondering, why couldn't we replicate this at our locality next year and make it even bigger event? 
A few months before the shara, I got together some of my college friends, my cousins, and some other boys from the locality and explained the whole idea to them. Not all were convinced. Some wondered whether converting a traditional festival into a disco-like event would work. I was sure that it would, and decided to go ahead with it. We hired strobe lights and signal lights to create a lightning effect similar to one at the new disc coming up in town. A music band that played in some Hindi films was hired to belt out the latest Hindi movie numbers. Synthesizers and other electronic musical instruments replaced recorded folk music, and that added to the whole novelty value. I was quite sure that the event had to be bigger and quite different from what was going on till then. These were the late 70s, and all these events weren't really common even in Mumbai. The invites to the event was called passport, suggesting that it would be an experience no teenager could afford to miss. I was even able to rope in a couple of advertisers. Mostly by coaxing some uncles living in the same locality, we paid for the banners and that took care of the costs. When the day arrived, we were all taken aback by the turnout. Crowd management, though we hadn't heard of the term as yet, was a major issue at hand. <laughs> the whole event was a roaring success. Was much beyond what we had expected. We continued to organize it for the next couple of years. It tested my organizational skills to the extreme, and I was quite satisfied with the way we had managed to bring in advertisers and sponsors. Looking back, I think this was the first popular trend that I picked on early and was able to capitalize on it. The event had struck a chord with many youngsters, and I was an instant celebrity within the residential area and my entire friend circle. So, in the final year of his college, he starts working with his father and the, his five brothers and two elder cousins. We've already joined the family business, and his experience is well. Let me read it for you. While still in college, I had decided that I wasn't going to continue in the family trade. I saw little reason in becoming the ninth member of the family to get involved in the same old routine. I realized I was not made to work in this kind of a business. They were mostly into the trading various kinds of fabrics. They all seemed to be more inclined towards preserving the business the way it was. I trusted my own nose for business and felt the need to break away from it and start something on my own. What I also found very disagreeable in the business was the obsession with financial control. The business was following a modified version of parla, which is a, a traditional form of accounting practiced mostly in the Marwari community in India. It's like a single sheet that tells you where your business stands that day. Um, I disliked it from day one. The parla systems allows one to micromanage, but it doesn't help one to grow the business. And if there are only accountants in each part of the business, where are the entrepreneurs going to come from? Which is actually a very deep perspective. I completely agree with him. I think today um, most Marwari big businesses do not follow parla system at all. While I studied the birlas, I realized even they have also passed on from following the parla system. And most businesses, in fact, even in my Marwari family, we don't follow the parla accounting. And here's here's a very interesting observation about him at the office when he was there by Kishore's father. Um, and he quotes it brilliantly. Kishore would come to office, and within two to three hours, he would be irritated and leave. He neither liked our attitude nor our approach towards the business. While he wouldn't confront us directly, it showed on his face. He would ask, "Is this a business at all?" It was a trading business, and we all were aware that the margins were too low to sustain. He suggested that we should set up large manufacturing facilities, but we didn't want to take large risks, and were obviously quite. Hesitant about it. Again, accountants 
micromanaging and running businesses <laughs> is it a business at all imagine asking that to your dad damage it <laughs> i'm focusing on the college aspect cause i am assuming you are still in your early 20s and this kb will be more relatable to you and that's why um let's dive into what he did in his final year of college that gave him uh, even more conviction about his own ideas and his nose for business so at college he uh, i noticed my fashion conscious friends wearing trousers made out of a new kind of fabric he called it stone wash fabric from this is this is where he's going to get his first idea from it seemed fashionable simply because it was different and that somehow struck me I borrowed it from him and showed it to some people I knew in the garment trade. A few weeks later, approached Jupiter Mills, one of the larger government-owned textile mills located in Mumbai. Some friend had suggested that they were planning to make stonewash fabric, and I placed an order for two hundred meters of the cloth. Then I tried selling these to a few garment manufacturers and a few small shops. Some other traders too had started introducing this fabric in the Mumbai market, and much to my surprise, it became quite popular among the trendy college-going crowd. in the next 6 months i was able to sell a few lakhs of rupees worth of stonewash fabric that's how i made my first profit by now i was fully convinced that i could chart my own entrepreneurial course in his words he had tasted blood and he was confident that he could chart his own entrepreneurial course now remember this is still 1982 83 where he made a few lakhs of profit in his first venture so of course it gave him the confidence and the mulla to move forward in most marwari families at his time even till date um right after college uh, you get your degree and then you get <laughs> your marriage sorted out as well uh, which also happened in kb's case as well uh, his parents introduced him to sangeeta rathi and after 6 months of courtship they got married in 1983 and even at his wedding sheer rebellious nature that comes through because he didn't want to wear over decorated sherwani that he was supposed to wear on the day of his marriage so his his friend uh sanjay uh who i mentioned earlier had to rush and get a regular clean white sherwani and that also he wore very grudgingly um but then he acknowledges how for the next 23 years up till the publishing of his book it's his wife who has lived with the maximum share of such tantrums and yet over the years she's really reinforced his belief um in himself and given him immense amount of succor and courage what is succor um succor is assistance and support in times of hardship and distress so she gave him immense succor and courage um she has taken all his erratic schedules in her stride and also accommodated what his friends call his finicky nature and here's uh, something about sanchita which which is also very intriguing of her deciding to marry somebody who's this upfront now and uh, now before even the wedding um he had a reputation that preceded him and if that wasn't enough he was very vocal about his scenario when he first met her hear this out his reputation of being a rebel preceded him even before i met him many people cautioned me that he had a different outlook towards everything in life we met each other and we were engaged in two days I somehow found him interesting and good to talk and frankly I didn't care about anything else I didn't want my husband to be traditional or like some of the regular marwari boys who used to wear strange rings or funny dresses I had grown up in an open environment and he suited me perfectly well he wasn't in the habit of showing off and whenever we met he was just himself but before marriage hear this out but before marriage he did warn me warn me that he was very different from all his relations 
and he may move out of the joint family structure, which also means the joint family business. He may move out of the joint family structure. He wanted to do everything on his own. He didn't look for or expect support from any of his family members. Even during the wedding ceremony, he had to be forced to perform all the customs and rituals right from the beginning. He didn't pay much heed to advice from family members, only because they were family. In any case, few in the family could really grasp or make sense of him and his thought process. They all had merely resigned themselves to the fact that he was different, but no one really expected anything grand or spectacular from him. However, one positive thing was that while my father-in-law did not encourage him to pursue his own ideas, he did not prevent him from doing things on his own either. Wow, I need a Sanchita in my life who can <laughs> who can back me and take care of um, and with immense succor and courage and constantly reinforce my self-belief in me. But wow. Um, that's a pattern I have observed uh, in so many founders, including Captain Gopina that I'm going to cover soon, and um, Kumar Mangalam Birla. They have really, and even Narayan Murthy, which I'll also be covering in the 10 episodes that I'm planning for this, with this kind of a format. They've really lucked out on getting a companion who's just <laughs> amazing. Let's get into his entrepreneurial journey, he really looks at entrepreneurs as three types, and I find it very fascinating. There are three kinds of entrepreneurs, creators, preservers, and destroyers. Yes, Brahma, Vishnu, and Maheshwara or Shiva. My father and uncles, much like most other entrepreneurs in India, were preservers. I consider myself to be both creator and destroyer. Preserving the status quo has never been my cup of tea. A continuous process of change and of growth has to be there in every business. If a business doesn't grow and evolve, it is not an enterprise at all. Now, Indians have a lot of entrepreneurs, probably the highest number of entrepreneurs in the whole world. The primary reason behind this, which is um, Indian entrepreneurs not growing and scaling immensely, uh, despite being so so large in numbers, I think is that our family system works against entrepreneurship. Parents discourage their children from taking large risks or getting into uncertain territory. They constrict their vision and the ability to think expansively. From my own experience, my family reluctantly agreed to what I chose to do, but never encouraged any of us to think beyond our means. They were quite conservative and I have found this kind of limitation even among other so-called business communities of India, the Gujaratis, Parsis, Chetiars, etc. And I agree with him. Family, as much as it can be a launching pad, it is also um, restricting. He did not really have a mentor throughout his life. For him, it was mostly the market, the customers and his obsessive studies. And he, he really outlines this. I did not have a mentor and most successful entrepreneurs don't necessarily have the luxury of having one. I created my own mental mentors, studied various subjects and eagerly sought knowledge. I strongly believe that there is a hard and arduous journey that one has to undertake alone. I was lucky that I understood very early on that I had to do everything on my own and that no one was going to help. Whew. That is my pursuit with this podcast as well. All of these are my mental mentors. And that is why I'm obsessively studying them and making podcasts with them. Sometimes I'm lucking out by getting them as guests and asking them questions they want to ask, but sometimes I'm not able to. And that is why I wanted to bridge it. I really connect with what he's talking about, his definition and approach to entrepreneurship. He says entrepreneurship is about 
thinking big, believing in your own ability and going ahead with huge risks. Even if you're aware that some of the ventures may not be successful. It's also about making decisions, leadership, and about making your colleagues believe in your dream. Building an enterprise is a dream, a vision. And in my case, it kept growing every time I reached a new milestone. The one crucial thing that helped me was my ability to think in terms of a mass customer base and focus on a single-minded pursuit of growth. I just couldn't think anything elitist. I have never understood people who spend a few lakhs on a pen or a watch. None of my businesses will ever cater to them. Instead, my biggest fear is getting into a situation where I lose touch with the public. I'm almost paranoid about it. Our business is entirely dependent on observing people, understanding their emotions and catering to their needs. It has been our imperative as a mass player. Despite stepping out of his family business, he really appreciates the classical shop setup of a dukan. Let me read that out for you. There was one thing that I found worth learning from our family business. At our shop in Kalba Devi, we would sit on gaddis, like beds. Thick mattresses supported by round pillows. One still finds them in the old business districts like Kalba Devi in Mumbai or Barra Bazaar in Kolkata. Well, it wasn't just the gaddis that I liked. I admired the basic structure of the setup. The seat on the or the owner squatted on the gaddi in a corner and was surrounded by the munim which is the chief accountant, and his deputies. The deputies could talk directly with the state whenever they wanted. Accounts were written without vouchers on the statements itself, and the state could directly interact with his clients and customers. So this really ensured like a direct flow between a uh, flow of information, insights, and knowledge from the customer front to the state. And a lot of present-day businesses have a lot of bureaucracy, systems and things in place that, that increase the gap for critical details um, to go from the ground up to all the layers of the organization. And that is why he was very insistent on getting as few layers as possible between him and his customers. And I think in this book that I realized he has got it down to three level, three layers. Um, the Sate and the Munim and the accountant and the customer is just two layers because they're just one step away from the Munim and um, from the customers, the Sate is just one step away. So it's almost like two layers. Uh, organizations that allow insights and information to flow freely will be the ones to come up with the best ideas. Significant delaying and creating a seamless organization is the only route to success. As of now, we have five layers or bands within our company. I don't see any reason why we can't do with just three. The information gathering layer, the knowledge creation layer, and the strategy layer. Reducing to two layers like the SATE, may not be possible, but an organization with three layers can be created, thus building a completely seamless organization. And that is going to be one of his primary objectives um, in the next 10 years, hence, of publishing this book. I like the concept of three layers, just like there's like the information gathering layer, there is a knowledge creation layer and the strategy layer, which really epitomizes or simplifies the entire business from like five layers to three layers. I find it fascinating. And it also made me appreciate the setup that my dad and my uncles have and uh, realize how simple their setup is and how nimble it is because of having just two layers. Thank you, KB, if you're listening. <laughs> um, so now with the success of Stonewash Fabric, remember in his college days, he had tasted blood and he was looking for something new after that. And when he was looking for it, he had a very clear filter. He wanted something where there was mass appeal. 
and he wanted to try out something that would reach out to maximum number of people in the country. It took him 15 years of active looking to find over the next 15 years, I kept looking for a beachhead to realize my dream. For those 15 years before all of these started, he hopped, skipped and jumped or stumbled from one business to other. Um, I'll try to go into a few of them so you can understand what they were. And these were actually very trying times. Um, but he was very fortunate enough to have the support of two family members, his wife primarily and uh, his younger brother, Anil, who was also helping him in whatever he was doing. But these were very trying times still. He got his hands dirty. I like to say this much to the displeasure of my family and well-wishers. I got my hands dirty in multiple businesses all at the same time. Some of these businesses were moderately successful, but most of them had to be closed down after a few years. However, in some way or the other, each of these businesses contributed to my understanding of customers and formed the foundation of what is today our company. One of the first things that he started off was WBB, which, which is a brand of fabric for men's trousers. And WBB stood for white, brown, and blue, which are the only three colors used for men's trousers um, back in the day. So it was very smart and catchy a name for a brand. However, his family did not agree for it. And, and here's Anil, uh, who's his younger brother, telling you about this. Uh, around this time, Kishore did three dramatic things, and these are dramatic. Hear me out. The first was naming the brand WBB. The traditional way was to name a product after the name of a god or a family member, like Mahavir Saris or uh, Bunsi Silks. But he had no intention of that nature. He believed that the brand should relate to the products. Then he went ahead and decided to spend a few lakh rupees on advertising. Again, something that most people fe felt was foolhardy. He even hired an advertising agency for it. My uncles would often speak to my father and point out how even before he had showed any results, he had drawn up an expenditure plan that was scary. However, it was a third step that really took everyone by surprise. Oh my God. The family had 600 square meters of land in an industrial area in Andheri, a northern suburb of Mumbai. Kishore had taken the initiative of constructing a two-storied building and we were planning to set up a couple of looms over there. One fine sunny morning, he went to the Kalba Devi office, picked up a typewriter, a chair and a table, hired a tempo and along with Raju, left for the Andheri office. Raju is probably a help. At that time, it was almost taboo for us living in Malabar Hills to travel 25 kilometers to far away Andheri for work. But now, everyone was convinced that he had gone crazy. It's like Nietzsche Dukan Upar Makan is the usual format of a typical Marwari business, but then what Kishore is doing is unfathomable. Even today, imagine doing this in the 1980s and 90s. Whoa! He had a nerve, and I can really, I can feel that. He really believes in the power of branding and this comes across in the evident success of WBB. Power of branding also became evident with the success of WBB. The next step was how could we take the brand ahead and add some more value to our products and start to compete against the big boys in the business. Because at this point, um, he was already selling about 30 to 40,000 meters of branded fabric every month. And uh, he really did a good job at establishing WBB. 
Now, with this short success, he goes ahead and decides because he was just selling fabric. And back then, you'd buy fabric, you'd go to your tailor, get it measured, cut and stitched. And that's the model that was the norm. So having tasted success, um, where he was getting about 30 to 40,000 meters of branded fabric every month, he decided to take it a step ahead. Um, so he took about 30 to 40 trousers stitched at Andheri and showed it to some shop owners because he wanted to go ahead and start selling ready-made trousers, which was actually very bold. Um, but none of them seemed interested in doing business with a small company like ours. By the end of 1985, with the help of another friend of his, he set up a 400-square-feet shop at CR Tank near Bombay Central Railway Terminus. It sold men's trousers and we called it Patloon. That was my first retail experience. Now, he had to get into retail because no other shop was willing to take his ready-made trousers classic founder mentality. He's either going to go straight to the solution, he's going to take the sideways. If you don't give him the sideways, he's going to go below your legs or between your legs, but he is going to go. You cannot stop this person. And while he was doing all of this, those 15 years of struggle, those trying times, I believe what his wife tells um, is unbelievable. I, I think the power of having a partner that understands you and is behind you through and through is so important. It really comes across here. Uh, for Kishore, Patloon was more of an experiment. He would go to the shop in the afternoon, come back all excited and spend the whole evening telling me how two or three trousers got sold that day. Compare this with about 30 to 40,000 meters of fabric that he was selling a month. That means he was easily selling about 1,000 to 1,500 meters of fabric. That's easily about, if you need two meters per pant, um, you would have about... Um, 500 to 700 pants worth of fabric that you're selling a day. And then you take this new experiment where you're selling just about two to three fabrics and you're still excited. So hear this, so hear this with this context in mind. And this is wife speaking. Uh, he would go to the shop in the afternoon, come back all excited and spend the whole evening telling me how two or three trousers got sold that day. Selling ready-made garments didn't make sense during those days and no one took him seriously. Even family members used to find it funny. Often people would come up to me and say, we are not tailors. Why is he doing the tailor's job? Fed up with such remarks, I would often nudge him and all he would say is, kya farak padta hai? Are yaar, what difference does it make? Or, or like I, I would tell now, who gives a fuck? He was least bothered about what others said as long as he was confident about his plans. Soon, I too started discarding such remarks. Whoa, Sangeeta. Big kudos to you. After seeing a little success with the trousers, he decides to take he decides to get into manufacturing of trousers. He tries to set up the manufacturing facility, ropes in really important people, uh, despite being a small company, but then it fails because of union problems in and around that area, despite having tasted success again. Still, this teaches him a very crucial lesson that he was able to get somebody uh, very important to join him leaving a big company, which was Sushil Sen. And what he learned from him was um, the importance of making quick decisions. He taught me how to make decisions and execute them well. He was my mentor for some time to come and we still maintain a very close relationship. Here's the first view of Sushil Sen gets when he meets Kishore Biani. Now, Sushil Sen is um, the founder member on the board of Pantaloon Retail now. But back then, he was a chairman of National Textile Mills in South Maharashtra that owned about 35 textiles mills across the state, uh, including Mumbai. And he got him to leave that and get into his um, small company. And here's his first impression. 
My first impression of Kishore was of a young, timid, but honest boy. So Kishore must have been about 25, 26 by now. He had already briefed Krishna, who's who's Krishna was the one who introduced both of them, on what he was looking for and hardly spoke himself. But when he finally did, he made lot of sense. He had a very clear vision of what he wanted to do, a, ve- a good understanding of textiles and was up to date with all the market information. The initial vibes were very positive. However, having been associated with large corporations throughout my career, it was difficult for me to imagine that I would be involved in such a small venture. But Kishore had done his homework well. The business plans and the profitability figures on paper looked quite genuine and exciting. In retrospect, I find that he had visualized this as an opportunity much before anyone else had. Probably the same is true for his success in retail. Neither money nor success has transformed him. He still has the same simplicity. He has done a fantastic job. But what's more important is that he is a wonderful person. This is fascinating because getting somebody like that early on in your venture really reinforced uh, KB that he is on the right track. The manufacturing facility called, was called Dhruv Synthetics. It had a very brief history, uh, but the experience of managing a manufacturing facility gave him a toehold to make an even larger leap, which we'll get into now. The first company that he started before, which became Patloon and then Pantaloon, was Manswear Private Limited, which was incorporated in 12th of October 1987. He says, I was a little, little over 26 years old and my last five years had been spent understanding the textile industry. We started off as a garment manufacturer, launched a couple of brands, got into franchising and direct marketing and 10 years later, Launched into modern retail. During this time, the company's name changed from Manswear to Pantaloon Fashion and subsequently to Pantaloon Retail, reflecting the changing nature of the business. Classic creator and destroyer in motion. He started the company with a seed capital of 7 lakh rupees and an initial production capacity of about 200 trousers per day. And the trousers were sold under the brand name of Pantaloon. And uh, and he doesn't really remember what inspired him to come up with the name of Pantaloon. I can understand Patloon's pant, uh, but Pantaloon is something that he doesn't know what inspired him for. He says, it was a heavy dose of the Italian fashion magazines that I used to buy often. It almost sounded like the Urdu word for trousers, Patloon, yet had a trendy feel to it. So there's no specific origin story of the name. But within a year of its operation, with just 7 lakh, here, here this out, with just 7 lakhs of seed capital, manufacturing about 200 trousers a day. Within a year of its operations, the company touched a turnover of rupees 32 lakh. But it also registered a loss of rupees 8 lakh. The main reason for that, of course, was the rupees 16 lakh we spent on advertising and brand building alone. My goodness. You starting with a capital of 7 lakh rupees and you make a turnover of 32 lakh rupees, but you end up spending 16 lakhs on advertising and brand building. You spend, you end up getting a loss of 8 lakh rupees at the end of an year. So you've pretty much burnt all your seed capital and some more. You know, he goes on to say, marketing, advertising and the power of branding had always held a deep attraction for me. I feel an advertisement captures the people behind the brand, their way of thinking and what has gone into the making of the brand. I studied advertisements very closely and interpreted organizations based on the ads they carried. I wanted to position our company as a fashion house and we spent heavily in creating a major communications campaign for our brand. For the next few years, we continue to invest disproportionately large sums of money 
into building our brands, even when it hurt our bottom line. Oh, yes, it did. <laughs> the branded apparel segment was extremely fragmented. I think with the help of our ad agency, we did a fairly good job of establishing our trouser brand. Now, Kishore is one of the one of the qualities of Kishore, which is also a strength and weakness comes across is he trusts people blindly and he gives them the authority to take decisions. Um, we'll get into that in a bit where he talks the difference between delegation and abdication. Here's a good example of abdication. This is narrated by his brother, Anil Bihani, younger brother. Um, Kamlesh Merchant used to work with us as a technical consultant and machinery indenting agent. He was aware that Kishore was looking for more advanced weaving machines. On a trip to Germany, he came across a distributor for these machines who was willing to sell 24 weaving machines of the latest technology. He called up Kishore and asked him to fly down to Germany, take a first-hand look at these machines and negotiate the prices. But Kishore didn't think twice and asked him to immediately place an order. He told Kamlesh that since his own understanding of technology was far less than that of Kamlesh, it was better that he close the deal as early as possible. Till date, Whenever I met Kamlesh, he reminds me of this incident. How can a person strike such a huge deal on the phone? He wonders. A big picture with a hundred such machines was running in Kishore's mind and a few lakh rupees that we could have saved from bargaining really didn't bother him. <laughs> um, wow, this is really thinking big and uh, it inspires me as I just read it for you. They tried to sell the trousers to various stores and uh, around Mumbai, but it wasn't really an easy job. At this time, he wanted he started expanding Pantaloon store from that one store in Mumbai in a franchising model. Um, but the biggest stumbling block was distribution and the capital needed to set up that distribution network. One of his friends was opening a store in Goa, um, which was not doing well. And this is what happened. I suggested to him that we could set up a pantaloon franchise shop that would sell only our trousers. A franchising network seemed to be an ideal way of ramping up our reach across the country. He willingly agreed to it and our first franchise store opened in Goa in 1991. It was called Pantaloon Shop. And once that shop opened, I wanted to set a nationwide franchise network. And the next pantaloon shops came up in Cochin, Ernakulam in Kerala, Kolaba and Andheri in Mumbai and on Ahmedabad CG Road and at Chennai Steenagar. While he was doing all of these expansion, he had secured a distributorship from Arvind Mills for their jeans, for the denims. And that was giving him sufficient revenue that helped balance the expense of this growth that he was having with pantaloons. Now, but while he understood and developed the denim market for his own self through pantaloon, it became very clear that he had to create his own brand. So he started Bare Necessities, which became one of the brands which pantaloon carried. And he began scaling that up. So by the end of 1991, there were 22 of them across the country. There were 22 his franchisee networks. And most of these were small shops located in popular shopping areas. And soon, they, they not only just focused on trousers, but they also expanded to shirts, trousers, sports, denim, sports and denim wear, socks, ties and handkerchiefs. So you see these, they have expanded to about 22 stores by the end of 1991. And here came the challenge. They needed more capital to grow further. So the only way to raise funds was by approaching the stock market. The liberalization policy brought in by the new government in 1991 had boosted the stock markets. Not only was the Sensex on a high, the primary market was seeing an unprecedented amount of activity. So in 1992, they 
announced an IPO in Mumbai, Delhi and Ahmedabad stock exchanges. There were different stock exchanges back then, like they are even right now. There were only two, but there were multiple back then. And they raised 225 lakh rupees. During the initial public offer, they, they diluted 60% of their holding to raise 2.25 crores. And it went well. They were able to raise it. And I always seized the opportunities that came my way. And raising money from the stock exchange was an opportunity I didn't want to let pass. There's a wave of excitement vis-a-vis the new liberated economic environment at the time. And capital was a major constraint for us. And a lot of entrepreneurs had begun to approach the primary markets in the early 90s. And investors, on the other hand, were putting their stakes into every public offer being launched. But he also says, we didn't allow the stock market performance to affect our business plans. We continue to experiment and learn on the way. Of course, they had poor valuations for a while, which obstructed them to raise further capital. And this is what he says. But then business isn't a cakewalk and neither did we expect it to be one. His obsession with studying the fashion industry is palpable throughout the book. From buying Italian magazines to carrying brochures, studying them incessantly, he would also drop by at the National Institute of Design, Ahmedabad, and um, their Dr. Darli Okoshi, who was the director of NID Ahmedabad, was also board member and director of Pantaloons Retail. Look, observe when he goes to people of resource and repute, he tries to incorporate them into his business in one way or the other by making them directors or investors or um, raving fan customers or partners or stakeholders. He has a way to get them into his zone. Um, here's what Darli Okoshi had to say. He would drop in at our institute from time to time to know more about fabric, about design and about how to build brands. He would observe the most innocuous things and discuss his vision and dreams passionately. He himself came from a rather middle income business background and he understood the income disparities in India. Now, once um, they became a listed company, there were pantaloon shops in about 22 different cities and places, more and more Inbound demand started coming in and here's how his criterias were to qualify them. Hear this out. With brands like Pantaloons Bear, which is Bear Necessities, and John Miller, we started, John Miller is another brand that they got in. We started getting a lot of inquiries from across the country asking for the franchise for Pantaloon Shop. Choosing the right partners was always a tricky affair. More than financial muscle, it was important to understand the values of the person we were going to partner with. I remember having a two-step screening test. I would visit the store of prospective franchisees a little before they were scheduled to open. The first objective was to check whether the store opens on time. Now here's where customer's God comes in. Hear this out. Then immediately after the shutters were pulled up, I would walk into the store. The first thing most shopkeepers in India do is perform a puja inside the shop. I was interested to know with how much importance the shopkeeper treats his customers. I would typically go in when he was about to start the puja and see whether he attended to me first or made me wait till the puja got over. For a shopkeeper, the customer should be his deity and it was very imperative that he was given the first priority. If they passed these two tests, I would then initiate discussion. Whoa, his two criteria and the way to test it is fucking phenomenal. What a way to filter through people. <laughs> I've already narrated how he would spend money on advertisements, brand building, and especially in the early and to late 90s and up till the early 2000s, he became the de facto for a lot of cricketers in getting them brand deals and getting them to um, stand for his brand. 
and while he did all of this people really thought that and and one of his um uh, associates says people used to laugh at his back saying that he is being foolish in spending this kind of money but his focus was on building the brand whatever it took in fact he says in a bid to establish ourselves as a fashion house we must have got almost every leading model of the day to model for our brands or endorse them the amirza aishwarya rai milind soman johnny ibrahim and sushmita sen among others model for our brands much before they became famous we spotted them early on and maybe our brands proved lucky for them <laughs> oof fascinating approach to brand building at its height there were 72 pantaloons shops spread across more than 40 cities um including small towns like hubli kakinada quilon roorkela trichy trivandrum udaipur vijayawada and varangal and in 1994 they had a turnover of rupees 9 crore and they had an ambitious target of touching a 100 crore mark within 5 years and this is something that they announced openly in their annual report i mean this just shows the sheer ambition this man has and it's just going to get better and better hear me out there was a lull in their growth because a lot of these uh, franchise shop owners were finding out loopholes and exploiting them to make more money and eat into the margins that pantaloon was making and that is why to run a successful franchise model one requires watertight agreements strict control mechanisms and some tough rules and regulations so we understood with some relief that our slow growth wasn't because our products were not selling but because the model wasn't working for us things as simple as giving free alteration was being backcharged without giving the alteration and a lot of these loopholes these small shop owners were uh, misused he says but i was convinced that the organization had to take a giant leap piecemeal efforts wouldn't work in such a situation where he was trying to get all the shops to align somewhere around this time um is when he came up with the idea of the mega store so hear this out Sometime in mid 1996 we took the decision to explore how and where we could set up large format retail stores uh, because a lot of large format retail stores were coming in India and they tried to partner with a few of them but it did not go through and that's why they wanted to set up their own large format retail store um for want of a better name we started referring to it as the mega store whenever i would visit a city i would look around for an ideal location for situating it among the cities where our brands were doing well very well were hyderabad calcutta chennai and nagpur One of our oldest and best running pantaloon shop was at Hyderabad's model town in Punjagutta. In Kolkata and Chennai we had invested heavily in building our brands and we were reaping good dividends. I used to visit Kolkata very often and had checked out every market and shopping district in the city along with my friend Sudhir Bandari. I must have visited hundreds of outlets. One day on our way back to the airport he mentioned a 10000 square feet property coming up at Gariahat. I immediately asked for the car to be turned around to head towards the location. We reached there by 8 p.m. The doors were closed and we found that it was being converted into a marriage hall. I felt very strong that this was just the kind of setting I had been looking for. It was situated on one of the broadest roads of the city and was right in the middle of a throbbing shopping district. It had a good facade and the customer didn't have to climb steps to enter the shop. Hear this out. A flight of stairs right at the entrance I felt alienated a certain set of customers from the store maybe they find it intimidating or elitist and get the feeling that it is not my kind of store oh what amazing observation however the rich marble flooring and the ornate wooden doors that had been designed for a marriage hall were not suitable for the kind of store I was planning and here's what the owner of the marriage hall thought when he saw when he met kishore he wasn't convinced but when he met him and the conversation they had and how it went ahead is fascinating in itself 
Um, his name was Sham Sundar Dhanuka. Um, so Sham Sundar Dhanuka is from Kolkata, of course, and and he is the landlord of the Pantaloons Outlet, uh, which we are talking about in Gariahat, Kolkata. But he is also the owner of Sumangal Store in the city. So he already has a textile store in the city. So he understands the business. He understands Pantaloon and how it is doing in the market. And hear this out. We had purchased the property for setting up our own store, but due to some unfortunate circumstances in the family, we had to drop the idea. We were then planning to convert it into a marriage hall or rent it out to someone. It was at that point I was introduced to Mr. Biani. At that time, Pantaloon was a small brand and wasn't that well recognized. We were quite hesitant, but still initiated the dialogue. I then visited Mumbai with a draft agreement and met up with Mr. Biani. During the discussion, I mentioned that we were planning to open a similar Raymond store in Kolkata's Lindsay Street. And had even met Raymond managing Raymond's managing director. He immediately asked why I preferred Raymond when I said that they enjoyed a lot of goodwill. He said, "In five years, we will cross Raymond's turnover." I thought it was not possible, but I didn't argue with him. The discussion ended there, but I think he did manage to cross Raymond's textile turnover much before those five years. Somehow, he had an infectious sense of ambition and a very positive attitude. I had written down some stiff terms and conditions, which maybe I'll get into in a bit. And you will be like, "Whoa, these are really stiff conditions." All of which he willingly agreed to. Over the next couple of months, I waited for the store to open before giving him any feedback. And here, here are some of the stiff uh, conditions, which are which are very unusual. Uh, this is what Kishore says. He, however, agreed to give it to us on rent, albeit at a very high rate. It was also agreed that a certain percentage of our daily sales would go to his bank account just to make sure we didn't default on the rent. Ooh, these were tough conditions, but what I got in bargain was a perfect spot to build my dream on. It was now in my own hands to script my success story. In fact, after the first day of opening of the store, there was so much cash <laughs> that when the cashier went to the bank, which was located next door, um, the bank manager refused to take the cash in because there was no cashier to count the cash. <laughs> After the opening of that store on the first day, it was a huge thing. They made a big, uh, loud noise about it. Uh, booked tons and tons of billboards, made a lot of kalata about it, and because of all of that, the crowd was crazy. And at the end of the first day, uh, our and it was right around Durga Puja, so you can just imagine. Um, at the end of the day, our store manager took the cash to a branch of the State Bank of India located right next to the store. We had an account there, but the bank manager flatly refused to accept the cash. He explained that he didn't have a person who would sit down and count so much money. <laughs> <Woo -hoo>. Um, <laughs> uh, he's really fast because right after launching the store in Kolkata, over the next six months. We launched new stores in Hyderabad, Chennai, Bhubaneswar, and Nagpur. Um, and Pantaloon's store had this tagline where India shops for value, and they were positioned as these family stores that offered everything from men for men, women, and children. Uh, some stores also had like stationeries, books, toys, gifts, household items, and and footwear. Uh, so you can see it evolving from a clothing store to a mega store um, already. And I think one of the smartest things that KB did around this time was he wasn't doing these at the hotspots. This being a public listed company, had he opened the store in Mumbai or in popular areas like Delhi, uh, Bangalore, these would immediately be noticed. And if they would not work, they would they would end up uh, working against him. And that is why he says, uh, far away from the scrutiny of investors, competition, and the media, we felt Kolkata would be a good place to field test our new model. 
Not only did it allow us to experiment, but also gave us the time to examine and correct our course, if required. Ever since, for most new formats we launch, we bring them to Mumbai or Delhi only after they have been perfected in another city. Who? While he was building this fashion company, he was really insistent about making sure the designs were not something that's appropriate for page 3, elitist, or he wanted it to represent like the local context. Um, rather than following trends set outside our country, fashion needs to flow from within our indigenous culture, customs and colors. And something that his perspective towards design, which is also going to be a major part of this episode, is fascinating. And uh, this is something early on that he develops a uh, sense sensibility of design and one of the colleagues says to him design was not just about products or aesthetics but about touching the maximum number of people and making an emotional connect with them um kb kept saying look at our people understand them and talk to them in their language that's going to be a constant maxim for him throughout his uh, journey like the designer says we knew the versace or the gucci style but not hindustan indian body sizes skin color and lifestyles are significantly different from people in the west for example uh, and this is a very interesting insight that will also come up in uh, again in a moment and uh, you're going to see the impact of it for instance, most designers do not consider the fact that most customers travel in trains and buses and not in air-conditioned cars. So garments for Indian customers need to be designed keeping specific Indian conditions in mind from the very beginning. And in this entire time, in the entire retail space, probably he was the only one that was really betting on the future. With Prakash Arya, who is the chief operating officer and member of the board of directors of Pantaloon Retail. But before he joined them in 2004... He served as the CEO of Globus uh, for six years. And he, he points out something very fascinating. That seemed to be the right way to approach this business at that stage. Remember the bicycling uh, metaphor that he used, that he is bicycling uphill. And if he can't, doesn't constantly pedal it, it will slide down. Now, retail requires a deep understanding of local tastes and preferences. As an indigenous retailer, we had a strong advantage over foreign retailers within India. At this time, a lot of foreign retailers were flowing in. They had multiple joint ventures within India and with outside India. But they were not able to move fast enough. And the reason was this. Within two years of launching, we had established a fairly pan-India presence with pantaloons. By the end of 1999, there were 13 pantaloon outlets, including four in Hyderabad, two in Chennai and one each in Kolkata, Vijayawada, Nagpur, Bhubaneswar, Thane and Pune. These are the large format outlets. This is not this is beyond the franchisees that we discussed a while back. On the day we opened the first pantaloon store in Kolkata, our share price was 6.2 rupees. Let us assume that someone had invested rupees 1000 in buying our stock on that day and had held on to those shares. Exactly nine years later, in 2006, the rupees 1000 investment would have been worth rupees 2,62,000. Investors have now given a thumbs up to our company's capabilities and plans. But in 1997, there wasn't a single investor who believed that this was profitable. Now, I did a back calculation. It turns out they had a CAGR of 35%. Over the nine-year period that he's referring to right now. But understand something, when he listed the company in about 1991 till 1999, it was just, or 1996, it was not moving much. So there is a way to frame this that makes it look really, whoa, cool. But then there is also the overall broad picture. And the reason it did not move was because um, they had to do a lot of educating to investors on modern retail and how it has grown worldwide. Um, they were only among the two retailers that were listed on the stock exchange back then, uh, Indian stock exchange back then. In fact, a lot of foreign investors 
In fact, a lot of foreign investors who had first-handedly witnessed the retail boom back in America or UK uh, or other parts of the world took notice of Big Bazaar earlier than Indian investors did and a lot of them ended up backing him up. KB also understands this. He says it is basic human nature that when someone homegrown is on to something, his own people are the last to recognize him. And that is why it is so important to have a wife or a younger brother or family members or friends who have, and, and yourself, um, to have faith in you. Always have faith in yourself and your plan because it is going to take the longest for the people around you to take notice and recognize you. Here's Rakesh Junjunwala in the picture that I got really excited about because I respected Rakesh Junjunwala very differently after reading his perspective about Kishore. And it just shows how differently Rakesh Junjunwala looks at businesses. Um, here this entire excerpt out about three paragraphs long, but whoa, this is deep. This is Rakesh Tunjanwala speaking. The market's anxiety emerged from a lack of appreciation of retailing as a business and of Kishore as a person. Now, Kishore as a person was not as popular. It was mispopular back then for a long time. Uh, you can understand why. He was considered overambitious, but they all missed the big picture as well as the bus. Kishore was aggressive in a field that was supposed to see a lot of growth in India. The stock market was concerned about the high debt-equity ratio. But I found that it wasn't the debt that was high, it was just the equity base, which was low. So we helped him raise funds through private placements. I backed Kishore because he was very different from most entrepreneurs. First of all, he was very aggressive and secondly, he wasn't money-minded. For him, achievement meant doing what he thought innovative. He understood customers well and there was a lot of clarity in his thinking. I found this quality to be a key differentiator. He didn't drive himself by what revenues he was going to earn, but by what percentage of the customer's wallet he was going to attract. Instead of thinking of the profits he could make, he used to wonder about the number of footfalls he could aspire for. He was someone who always had his eyes on the big picture and willing to play the game for the long term. This is such a crystal clear and on-point analysis of Kishore Bihani. And he, and he was one of the early backers of uh, Kishore Biani. Another investor was ICICI and one of their um, key decision makers adds another perspective. Um, where What most people missed out was that the company has never defaulted on a single loan till date. Every banker was willing to lend him and that speaks a lot about the business. It needs to be traced back to the person and his credibility. For Kishore Bhai, growth was important. If he had waited for the cash flow to become substantial enough to fund the growth, he would have lost the lead, if not the market. In retrospect, I believe that it was also the honesty with which he conducted himself that helped him win the trust of investors in the long run. While he shared his big plans for the future, he was also very open about his constraints and the risks that were involved. So honesty is really important, comes across throughout in this book. This is where you find individuals who believe in you and your brand uh, way more than anybody else does comes across. Sometimes how you end up finding the right people when you're on the path. Um, this is Shivanand Mankekar. Uh, he's a visiting professor of finance at Mumbai's Jamnalal Bajaj Institute of Management Studies. And he's also an individual investor in the company. I just read this bit. Uh, it's fascinating. Our journey with Pantaloon began in May 2002. At Bangalore's Taj residency, we were meeting a friend from the financial community at the business lounge. We were talking mostly about some of the BPOs I'd visited since he casually mentioned to us that there is something called a big bazaar that has opened up in the city which was worth checking out. Later in the evening, we set out to take a look at this new concept called Big Bazaar. 
when we entered the ground floor it took barely 3 minutes for us to decide that this is the retailing model we had to own the reason was simply the environment which greeted us an environment of chaos where people were literally freaking out in our quest for the right retail company to invest in we had visited several stores but they were all focused only on lifestyle retailing india needed a value retailing model to revolutionize the indian retail scene big bazaar fitted the bill since here we found a customer who had driven in on a mercedes shopped as excitedly as folks who had come on foot and the store was packed on a weekday evening later our local friends told us stories about downing of shutters on weekends at big bazaar to avoid overcrowding just to confirm that what we saw wasn't sheer coincidence we made two more <laughs> visits to the store and each time it was the same situation with respect to the crowds after our third visit we rushed back to our hotel room called our broker and asked him to buy 4% of the equity capital of pantaloon over the next few days we didn't do any of the typical things expected from finance professors brilliant salute that is analyze the balance sheet or meet the management the simple reason for this was that the big bazaar outlet spoke much more it screamed out that here was a guy who really understood retailing the indian way and in fact when they both uh, the father and son duo met kb it's fascinating how they reinforced his belief um and i want to read this one more paragraph for you on returning back to bombay when we met kb in our first meeting itself we told him that we had a 13 year investment horizon on pantaloon by which time we believed that pantaloon would have 1 lakh crore market capitalization kb laughed it off since on that day pantaloon's market cap was barely rupees 50 crore but today 4 years hence kishore says anything is possible we always tell him that we believed more in him than he did in himself <laughs> so the mega store became big bazaar and its impact reverberated throughout the country in small and large ways and here's a classic example of what can happen um which can completely which completely took me by surprise and uh, i'm sure you're going to feel like whoa <laughs> this is insane um nearly 400 kilometers southeast of mumbai in western maharashtra is the quaint little township of sangli surrounded by sugarcane fields the town is a trading center for turmeric oil seeds sugarcane and grapes the town derives its name from sabagali or six lanes in marathi some of its residents are farmers who own large tracts of land in the surrounding mohan jadhav is one such sugarcane farmer who lives in valwa another 40 kilometers from sangli 55 years old jadhav lives in a joint family that has 127 members he also happens to be our biggest customer till date hear this out on a sunny tuesday morning in march 2006 he drove down to sangli in his bajaj trax pickup van along with his wife sister in law and nephews the six of them visited our big bazaar outlet in the town and indulged in some frenzied shopping activity buying grocery utensils shirts dhoti sarees shoes toys and much more at the cash counter his bill turned out to be 14 feet long <laughs> the total amount he had shopped for on a single day at this big bazaar outlet was 137367 rupees <laughs> and <laughs> this once also shows how localized some aspects of big bazaar are uh, because it's the only outlet where we sell even edible oil loose because customers want it that way again customer obsession through and through um and this is very stark from how retail started in india hear this out 
one may find this strange today but when the first shopping mall of mumbai crossroads opened it only allowed visitors who had a credit card or a mobile phone such were the early days of modern retail in india from there to coming to this is unbelievable another very keen observation in big bazaar was uh, the stairs was one that really blew me away but another thing that made me go salute to his observation abilities was this here's what one of his early team members at big bazaar um told who was managing categories um when we were designing the uniform for the staff a lot of people said they should look smart and wear ties white shirts etc kishore ji was completely against it and said that the salesman should never look smarter than his customer if the customer is grade 5 on the social ladder let the salesman look grade 4 the customer shouldn't get intimidated by the salesman but be comfortable while interacting with him that was amazing it was a clear and precise idea and it said a lot and i don't think kishore ji has, has himself ever worn a tie to work again classic dukandar mindset on steroids <laughs> now comes the part that just made me go wow because for the longest time i thought this is from the outside until i studied this book for this episode that this must have been a walmart cut copy paste and improvised but the store that inspired big bazaar surprisingly was this whenever i visited a city i would spend time visiting large markets and shops to figure out how we could take modern retailing to the next level i finally got the answer one evening in september 2000 standing outside a shop on rangnathan street in chennai now if you've guessed it Sarvana Stores is a 25-year-old family-run store located in the heart of Chennai and has a very simple philosophy to run its business: low margin, high turnover. Covering five floors and a basement, it stocks everything from appliances, groceries, clothes, jewelry, toys, and eyeglasses. Its textiles and garment section too has everything from kanchi, putam silks to bed sheets, and there is a vessel section that has loads of steel utensils. There's a separate block for fast food. where delicacies including idli puris parothas soft drinks and ice creams these are as popular as the special laddus and the mysore parks on offer located somewhat close to the railway terminus one can see hordes of people getting in and coming out with shopping bags at any time of the day and any time of the year it has around 120 people just to manage crowds but one doesn't get the best customer experience in the store to many sarvana maybe a shopper's nightmare but there are a lot of customers who just love it and approve of it with their frequent footwalls i would estimate that the single shop must be doing more than 200 crore worth of business each year woohoo and this is early september 2000s people and now begins his obsession with sarvana stores for the next few months first alone and then with a small team we dissected every aspect of sarvana to develop our own hypermarket model sarvana disproved Many of the accepted norms of modern retail, unlike the hypermarkets seen abroad, Sarvana showed that a store could operate on multiple floors. Also, it proved my belief that hypermarkets in India have to be situated within the city rather than in the suburbs, as it is in abroad. It also has to be near a transportation hub because most Indians don't own cars. Next, bag should be sealed at checkout so that people can enter and exit multiple times. Sarvana also. confirmed much against the belief of many skeptics that utensils jewelry and fashion garments could be sold under the same roof 
At Sarvana, it became apparent that Indians love to shop with their entire families. So the stores must cater to children and senior citizens as much as young couples. And of course, that Indians come dressed up for shopping as if it's a social occasion for them. Here's what an early employee who joined and was quickly moved to the Big Bazaar model tells about his experience. Um, Sarvana gave the kick, the passion and the understanding of what Indian retail is. We saw people shopping like mad, people being herded like sheep and then we saw them exiting with huge shopping bags. This was the real public of India and it proved the capability and capacity of the Indian consumer. We studied everything at Sarvana. We would carry a pencil and a notebook and roam inside the store. We studied their product mix, their price points, their margins and the initial merchandise matrix. For Big Bazaar was a replica of that at Sarvana. I don't understand how Sarvana stores allowed them to do this, but fascinating, yaar. People may say that we are inspired by the Walmarts of the world, which is what I thought going into the book, but it was at Sarvana that Big Bazaar was born. Everyone who joined the company during those days had to visit Chennai, seek homage at Sarvana, and then start working. Woohoo! <laughs> obsession at a crazy level. However, I have to also mention that they decided to do differently. We wanted to build a model that we could scale up and replicate fast. The margin structure and the organizational setup at Sarmana didn't allow it to open new stores nationally. It was essentially a family-driven business and was being run much in the same way a neighborhood shop is. We also wanted customers to have a better shopping experience at Big Bazaar. And once they locked in and understood the Sarvana Bhavan model, they went on a war footing. Hear this out. The first three Big Bazaar stores were launched within 22 days. It was also a showpiece of our speed and imagination at work. And there are details here that I want to highlight. There's like a comparison between hypermarkets in the West and hypermarkets in India that needs to be developed. There are insights here that I want to point out because... For Indians, shopping is entertainment. They come with their entire families and move around in groups. In such cases, aisles can be boring as they restrict space and can't be dramatized. At Big Bazaar, we created multiple clusters or mini bazaars within every store. It was designed as an agglomeration of bazaars with different sections selling different categories. The U-shaped sections and islands proved to be more appropriate for the Indian context than long aisles. From early on, we incorporated factors like these that we thought helpful for our customers into our store design. Because in the West or West hypermarkets, most people shop alone. In India, families go out for shopping and it's like a, it's like an event in itself. They dress up, they get together, all the generations, kids, the grandkids, the grandparents um, get together. So it had to be accommodated. And again, the first store, as luck would have it, would open in Kolkata. Um, at VIP Road in Kolkata. So they opened three big bazaar stores, uh, VIP Road in Kolkata, the first one, Abids in Hyderabad and Kormangla in Bangalore. And all of these locations were very different from each other. And this is where I tell you about the white shirt. So the head of big bazaar, Rajan Malhotra, shares this anecdote that really opened my eyes to how differently KB thinks and operates. Um, so because all these three stores were launched with a lot of galata in the uh, respective cities, it brought in a lot of PR for them and hordes of people. And so while hordes of people and footfalls came through the door, he wanted to ensure that when the demand was there, the supply should not fall short. 
So at one store, uh, here's what this what happened. The white shirt seemed to be a great idea and we ordered it in huge numbers. But we realized that this item, which we were so confident of, wasn't selling at all. The reason slowly became clear. The customer who walks into a big bazaar travels by trains and buses. Even when the price of a white shirt is low, the maintenance cost of these shirts is too high for him. As a result, he doesn't get interested in this item. People who wear white shirts can afford them for $4.99 or above and do not buy them at a hypermarket. So there was a complete mismatch between the product we were offering and the Big Bazaar customer. In fact, by the time the first review came in, the uh, Rajan was completely confused on how to explain this. He tried everything, advertising, promotion, discounts, and it just wasn't selling. So that is when, during the review, KB asked what he had done. And he explained um, how he had bought the shirt at 105 rupees and was now selling it for 129 rupees. I told him about all the other things. I'm reading this now. I told him about all the other things we had tried and that none of them was yielding any result. They had, I think, about... Yeah, they ordered 1 lakh white shirts and offered it at 149 rupees. So back to what he was saying. I explained that we had bought each shirt at the rate of 105 rupees and were now selling it for one for just 129 rupees. I told him about all the other things we had tried that none of them was yielding any result. He heard me out and then said, you are not trying hard enough. I was completely taken aback. But then he added, have you tried selling it at 49 rupees? I know we will lose money, but we have made a mistake. Let's accept it and move on. That incident taught me quite a few things. Never fear making a mistake. But if you have made one, get out of it fast and never put bad money after good money. The white shirt became our hero. It symbolized the spirit of the organization. And here's the best part. It was also the day when all of us became entrepreneurs. We had been given the liberty to destroy capital, something that is the sole prerogative of the entrepreneur. Woohoo! The permission to destroy capital. Wow, what a line. I love it. And this again highlights how he abdicates um, decision making and then backs people up because there were so many stores um, across these many formats across the country kishore bihani had to develop something which is probably unique in big bazaar itself uh, to understand and benefit from the diversity of indian consumers we therefore set up a diversity tracking cell that tracked local customs festivals habits and consumption patterns we left it to the store manager to make a lot of decisions based on local tastes and preferences and customize our offerings depending on what the customer in a particular region wanted. The chief reason why our hypermarket model worked was that we decided to focus more on merchandise rather than on operations. And this was a lesson straight out of Sam Walton's book, Made in America. Again, all of these books are listed in the show description. If you buy from them, you're helping um, support me and the podcast. There's also a wish list with all the books that he has listed out, including this book, that you can buy at one click, all paperbacks. Again, if you're buying it from there, you're supporting the podcast and me. Back to the quote. The book states, in retail, you are either operations-driven, where your main thrust is towards reducing expenses and improving efficiency, or you're merchandise-driven. The ones that are truly merchandise-driven can always work on improving operations. But the ones that are operations-driven tend to level off and begin to deteriorate. To me, this was the biggest secret that Walton shared in his book. Now we come to the part where he is talking about branding and how he captures the imagination of the audience. Is se sasta or acha kahi nahi. Nowhere is it cheaper and better. Nothing captures the spirit of Big Bazaar better than this one-liner. 
and this is what he wanted to be at the top of the consumer mind um, in India. Because this was how he wanted Big Bazaar to be a brand that was really built on the foundation of simplicity and entrepreneurship. When he's talking about making it merchandise-driven, what he did very interesting is that he completely laser-focused himself and his entire team on the front end and the back end. He completely outsourced it to consolidators, to local businessmen, because they understood the local taste, they had the network in place, and it also got the team at Big Bazaar to observe from close corridors and learn how these local businesses work, and then take those insights, and then later on develop the back-end. Now, he focused on front-end because uh, he firmly believed the retailer has to find the imagine of the customer and make her buy. I think Food Bazaar did that brilliantly. Um, Food Bazaar was another model within Big Bazaar, which I'll get to in just a moment. Uh, but before that, I'll tell you how it was structured. Food Bazaar deliberately kept the sourcing model very simple. It freed up management energy as many external businessmen shared the burden of procuring, storing and transporting the goods. It became a platform for amalgamation and KB left a lot of value to be shared with these traders. He operated on a principle that it was not about slicing the current opportunity, but about growing it further. He was able to convince them that if collectively they were able to grow the opportunity a modern retail format provided, there could actually be three winners, the customer, the vendor and the company. And in the meantime that the category team was being built around Food Bazaar, which mostly included uh, fresh fruits, vegetables, groceries. In the meantime, the category team was being built and they started picking up the specialized knowledge. Finally, the customer was going to come because of the brand Big Bazaar and Food Bazaar. Understanding what the customer wanted and adding it to the merchandise mix would obviously yield good results. And this became very fascinating because there were different stores that had like a live kitchen, a pickle bar, and some even had chakki, I mean, where, <laughs> where the, you could take, you could get freshly made atta uh, based on the local um, observations and the way the customers shopped in these different cities. And so they completely focused on front-end innovation. And that is how they developed Food Bazaar and became an independent concept within Big Bazaar. And his perspective about what is the job of a retailer is fascinating. The job of a retailer is to create demand. And that is why the front-end obsession. Building a robust supply chain is important, but it is not the primary role of a retailer. It isn't enough for a retailer to have an adequate supply of potatoes. He also has to ensure that the customers buy them. By focusing on the customer, we kept our business model simple, agile, and open to adaptation. Uh, he says, we may be criticized for lack of systems and process, but local sourcing has helped us keep stocks on our shelves and cope with erratic and often unpredictable shifts in demand from customers. A centralized process may not necessarily work for a vast and diverse country like India. It isn't easy to forecast demand for each product or each store sitting in the head office or even the zonal offices. Our store managers enjoy a lot of freedom when it comes to deciding the merchandise and product mix at the store. Our hypermarket model is based on the principle of building and strengthening the front end, creating demand through the front end and letting the supply follow. Again, focusing on the merchandise. When, when, we, when he was looking for marketing and advertising, he wanted to capture and trigger the imagination of the masses. And that led him to find people that actually thought in the local language and spoke local language versus the ones that were available in these ad agencies. And here's how he found the right person. Um, there are only a handful of professionals in advertising agencies who understand, speak and think in the language of the common people. Most marketing and advertising professionals are educated in convent schools, in large metros, 
um listen to western music watch foreign movies and speak and think in english if you're listening to this podcast you probably fall in this um so for us uh, on the other on the other hand i was sure that i wanted to communicate big bazaar with one liners in the local language and this is where he came across somebody who is relatively unknown advertising professional but who hardly appa- appeared in any gla- glossy supplements and magazines which were devoted to tracking the advertising industry but he had to his created a lot of successful campaigns in the local language and here's where he came up with these really cool one liners because he um, and he says it so beautifully um the good thing about gopi kukde is that he still thinks in marathi and hindi and not in english so for us he used a popular hindi phrase chane ke bhav kaju and extended it to a long list of similar comparisons from rui ke dam ilish uh, which means hisa hilsa fish at the price of rohu in bengali to stall ke bhav balcony because balcony gets at the price of stall seats an obvious reference to movie theaters these catchphrases appeared in hoardings and newspapers in every city where we launched a new big bazaar soon they became the talk of the town and firmly established the lowest price proposition in the minds of our prospective customers everybody understood and connected easily with these simple one liners my personal favorite is chane ke bhav kaju so his obsession with mass led him from retail to cricket but in the early 2000s cricket was becoming very expensive and cricket stars and the properties around them had become very expensive for kb to afford so he went to the next avenue which is even more bigger which is bollywood so over a few years he produced two movies one was na tum jaano na hum the other is hum aapke hai kaun and his reasoning was very intriguing because i believe that the only communication medium that comes very close to capturing the imagination of every indian is popular films and films have always fascinated me the characters the drama the sound effects and the stunts the songs and the dance sequences all come together in a film to make a billion people in our country escape their reality for 3 hours yet in many ways movies reflect what is going on in the popular consciousness in the best possible manner so he wanted to utilize films as a vehicle to bring about um different parts of his brands into the minds of a billion people and he tried it using two movies both of them did not perform well however he got two very interesting insights one among them is this sudden turn of fate happens only in the film world few people outside the film industry realize this but films are probably the fastest moving consumer goods one can put in as much effort as much passion as much capital and as many people into a film production but how the film performs is decided on a single day probably within a couple of hours so looking at films as an fmcg good is something that only kb can do another thing that entire process of making these two films being even included to in a few songs was that uh, the movie taught me that the most important thing is to never get too attached to any idea project or concept one has to dispassionately evaluate every business decision and realize that not all initiatives are going to be successful it is important to accept failure and to distance oneself from an idea or project if it doesn't work so it wasn't a complete failure but the amount of effort put in time energy put into these two films was not worth the roi that was expected um however they were still very successful in getting merchandises around these movies to be sold in the stores and also to present different aspects of big bazaar pantaloons within the movies so those are really interesting experiments i really like this one statement that comes in this book again and again which is really drilled into this episode as well 
I based everything on one philosophy. Rewrite rules, retain values. Chase your dreams, but don't compromise on your belief system. So, so rewrite rules, retain values is like a maxim that KB has stuck to through and through. And I, I want to double click on his values because they are unusual. So once all of this is growing and it's eventually going to be the future group that we know today as, um, the core values have more or less remained the same. The core values being Indianness, which I've discussed extensively, leadership, um, respect and humility, introspection, openness, valuing and nurturing relationships, simplicity and positivity, adaptability and flow. I think we'll talk more about leadership and flow in a bit because he has very different perspectives with both of these um, that are worth discussing. Even though we do not make movies anymore, Hindi films play a crucial role in our business. They help us understand trends and changing customer preferences. And that includes identifying which modern retail formats will be successful in which cities and which communities. It is fascinating because they want to see what movies are successful in what communities and then decide what kind of a format would be relevant for them, which is a very asymmetric inference um, or a data point that doesn't seem relevant from the top, but makes sense for them. Here's Kishore's perspective about hiring because he really does business at the speed of thought. Once the entire group was growing, he had to get in senior management to rein different aspects and parts of the group to the next level. And he had a very strong and staunch perspectives against MBAs. And here's what he told. Um, Kishore knew he had to bring a, qual bring a quality senior management team, but was a bit hesitant about the kind of people he wanted. He would say, I don't want the fancy MBA types. They don't fit into our organization because they are too proud of the fact that suit boot pen ke bed jayenge par product nahi bikega. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to bring in people in a senior management team that were uh, adoptable to the culture, but there were multiple things playing against him, including a negative perception towards employer brand of uh, Kishore. And there was also, the, the retail was very early in India. And so it was very hard to find relevant folks who would hit the road running. Uh, because Kishore had never bothered to hire a PR agency and only focused on growth at the cost of the company's image. Some interviews I'm going to walk through, you're going to observe how he approaches interviews as well. Um, so here's how it is. So Anshuman Singh uh, was brought in and he was hired for the role of chief executive of the value, fashion and furnishing division of pantaloons retail. A lot of jargon, but um, here's how he was hired. Uh, meeting KB for an interview can be an unnerving experience. I had been warned by the person who had introduced us not to get worried if he doesn't look into my eyes when he is speaking or if he doesn't seem to be paying much attention to me. Believe me, had that person not warned me, I would never ever have joined Pantalone. KB by nature is a restless person and it is easily evident. From Even during a meeting, he will look at his computer screen, fidget with his mobile, take a few calls and it can be troubling for someone not used to it. And if that is not enough, instead of asking me anything, this is during the interview, and even if that is not enough, instead of asking me anything, he wanted me to ask him questions. Yes, tell me. That's always his first sentence. When I inquired about my job profile, he said, we create jobs for particular people. We will create your job as per your profile. We find the people first and then find the job. We find the people first and then find the job. Ooh, what a different way to look at hiring. Um, here's another one. Uh, this is Sanjay Jok, who was brought in um, to head human resource for Pantaloon Retail. When I met him in his room, I expected him to ask me a set of questions. Instead, he started off with saying, tell me what you want to know. And then he stopped. 
I found that very strange as that wasn't how an interview was supposed to happen. Yet, I asked him a couple of questions on business, his outlook, etc. Finally, I asked him why people in the company call him Kishorji. He asked me to explain what was wrong with Kishorji. I replied that nothing may be wrong, but just that I found it strange. He then asked me what I call my elders in my family. I said, well, we do add a G. So he said, yes, it is the Indian way of calling someone with respect. I argued saying that it sounds like Setji, which is very valid. He said, yes, it does, but you can call me anything else you want. I'm okay with that. I was surprised and asked him, isn't that carrying it too far? He disagreed and our meeting ended there. It was very unconvincing and it took a fair amount of time and a few more meetings to convince myself that it was worth joining this organization. Later on, he is, of course, a convert and um, here's what he says, shares. For instance, we were having this discussion on what to offer as incentives to our store staff during Diwali. I was throwing up usual solutions like giving them cash rewards or gifting them some bags, t-shirts, etc. But he had a completely different idea. He said, it's simple. What do we Indians like to do on Diwali? Paint our house. <laughs> what happens if we get our employee's house painted and the clutter removed? Look at the benefits. The clutter is removed and the house feels fresh. He or she comes to the store with a fresh mind. Their family feels proud about them and the community that they live in will talk about how his or her company did this for them. It will create social recognition as well. This idea had everything that needs to go into an incentive. There's recognition, self-esteem, pride amongst family members and social recognition. It was a genuine way of earning the loyalty of our shop floor employees. And the idea was born out of the Indian way of doing things. Jumping off to real estate because that's also going to be a big aspect of um, any retail store. He had a very clear formula and an approach to negotiation with real estate and real estate developers which is legendary in its own way. And I'll tell you that right now. But first, ideally, real estate cost should be less than 5% of the total sales of a store in order to provide maximum benefit to customers. At the current rates, it can be as high as 15 to 20%. This was once other competitors started entering the market and then the demand for um, retail space just shot up. But Kiri was lucky because he had already started booking lots of spaces around the country. Uh, much ahead of time. Real estate and retail, retail locations in Bollywood was something I had um, hinted to earlier. And here's a classic example. For example, Bollywood and retail locations may seem to be completely unrelated on the surface, yet studying box office collections of different movies provides interesting clues on which format will be ideal for a particular town or location. Whether a movie like Gadar or Dil Chahta Hai did better can give a retailer an idea of the demographic profile, tastes and preferences and how open people are to change. He had a very interesting um, gap when he was booking real estate spaces across the country. The fact was that um, in India, uh, let, me, let me just read this out because it's very easy to understand. Uh, retail is an entrepreneur-led business. This is again a perspective from somebody else uh, from the real estate sector that worked with uh, Kishore. Retail is an entrepreneur-led business, but in India, most retail companies are professionally run and often they are not able to take fast decisions. The professional CEO first goes to consultants or market research agencies to validate his choice and then goes to his owners for approval. The owners often do not know the ground reality and the professionals are not empowered to take decisions and, and do not take bold steps. Compare this with what Kishore does. Therefore, while most of the retailers were, for instance, booking 40,000 square feet at a particular locality or town, Kishore would go ahead and book 1 lakh square feet. In a moving real estate market, he is the one who therefore got the lowest prices and has been able to sign on more locations than anyone else. By getting in early, he has a far lower real estate cost structure 
and commands a la- much larger share of the retail real estate that is coming up. If this wasn't enough, here's what Atul Ruiya had to tell. Um, Atul Ruiya is is the director of Phoenix Mills Limited, the promoters of High Street Phoenix, uh, Mumbai, which is a mall. So I first met Kishorji when High Street Phoenix was being developed in 2001. By then, I had come to expect that CEOs would come with a team of six to ten people, including some consultant. Discussions typically started with them telling us what all was wrong with the property, so that they could beat us down on the price. Kishorji, on the other hand, came in alone at 9:30 in the morning. This just gets more interesting. I took him to the site, and within 10 minutes, he said, "I will take it." It was a refreshing change from what I was encountering with other retailers. He had a very positive outlook, and there was an immediate vibe between us. In hindsight, it seems he didn't come over to see the property. Knowing him, he must have checked it before. He had come over to understand whether a relationship could be built between us. I think a lot of Kishorji's decisions are based on whether he thinks a relationship can be built. Wow, what an insight! Our commercial agreement was finalized in two and a half minutes on a commercial flight. He had invited me to check the second big bazaar that was coming up in Hyderabad. On our way back on the flight, I suggested a price, and he said yes to it, and the deal was done. I had made up my mind at what price I will do the transaction. I quoted that figure. I didn't quote a higher figure, and he knew. It was a deal figure, and it was over. Even today, most real estate developers don't quote an inflated figure. They know that Kishorji isn't going to bargain. He is either going to say a yes or a no. I think many of the parameters that he put into that transaction became the benchmark for a lot of other deals as well. Kishorji has often played the role of a mentor to me. He was quite insistent that High Street Phoenix should be developed as an inclusive environment where every citizen of Mumbai can come to relax, unwind, and celebrate along with her family. He insisted that we do not charge for car parking, bring in both large and small retailers, and he was asked us to not throw the stray dogs out of the compound. His ability to do clack deals are very interesting, where he really trusts them, and then either says a yes or a no. There is no negotiation. Here's another instance of his negotiation and relationships uh, building abilities when it comes to real estate. Um, here's a quote from Anuj Puri. Uh, who's the managing director of Trammel Crow Megaraj it's a leading international property consultancy firm the first time i met kishore he said that he does a real estate transaction only when a bell rings in his head i had no idea what he meant by a bell has to ring there would be properties where we thought were good but if the bell didn't ring he would walk away within a couple of minutes what made the bell ring i haven't yet been able to decipher but i did figure out over time that he is very sharp in identifying whether a property will be suitable for attracting customers the famous bell however has become a popular anecdote in our company um he has a very quick instance that just shines this one such early bell ringing instance was about the high street phoenix property in mumbai we were working on behalf of developers and i wasn't sure whether kishore would like the property it was a textile mill land that was being converted into a mall There were huntments all around it, and Lower Parel in 2001 wasn't the most preferred location for any retailer. Kishore was planning to launch Big Bazaar in Mumbai, and we had approached him with the hope that he would agree to be the first tenant at Phoenix. I felt that if at all he decided to take this property, it was quite obvious that he would choose the area facing the main road, which is very obvious inference. Kishore not only agreed to open the first Big Bazaar store over there; he even took a contrarian call on the location. He chose within the compound. something he saw made him opt for an area inside the mill over a more visible and road facing one he looked at how a customer would come in where the car park will be located where she will get down and which will be the first store after the car park and his choice was proved right when the mall became operational thereafter we realized that the way kishore judges a property is very different from the rest he doesn't go by what anyone else says he applies his own vision kishore can crystal gaze and see what it will be 
three to five years hence. And the benefit of his fast decision making had reverberated throughout the industry, uh, wherein thanks to Kishore, our retailers are now forced to take fast decisions when it comes to choosing a particular property. Earlier, it used to take a long time for retailers to decide on a property, often a month or two, but Kishore mostly takes a call on a property on the first visit itself. Therefore, others are now forced to decide on properties within two or three days. That is a fascinating impact. Around the turn of the century, with Pantaloons and Big Bazaar moving forward, there was a new concept that Kishore taught of, which was called a central mall. Um, our experience showed that a customer visiting a mall typically walks into four or five stores that includes a large store and a few smaller brand showrooms. After that, fatigue sets in and he or she is unwilling to walk into any more stores at the mall. So we asked ourselves what would happen if we removed the walls between the different stores in a mall. In that case, a customer would be exposed to multiple brands at the same time without the necessity of walking in and out of different stores. And along with shopping, we would also provide her with other entertainment options, customers could then enjoy a seamless shopping. And this really renewed the confidence of a lot of folks within the company and played a larger role in shaping the modern retail space within the country. And this was called the Central Mall. Why? Because they wanted to make it the central node or the entertainment place, um, whichever city they went into. They wanted it to be like the hotspot or the hub where families went to for entertainment. They wanted to create it. It was called a destination mall to attract customers from all nooks and corners of the city. And as they were leading the entire retail space in India, they took it upon themselves um, to proactively build this kind of a destination mall. It is called Central Mall. So the first Central Mall was started here in Bangalore. It was a destination mall because the landmark was MG Road. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was started at MG Road. Uh, where there was Hotel Victoria, they took over that space and made it into a central mall. And there were a lot of features that established it as a focal point for the city, like the central square located outside the mall. Building has been made available for art exhibition, cultural performances, shows and product launches. And in 2005, there was like a vintage car rally that started from this place. And it also had India's first in-house radio station called Radio Central, they captured all the glory that they wanted um, in a single destination. And the tagline was shop, eat and celebrate. Um, I really like this. Um, it's a fascinating thing that they were able to evolve to. And after the Bangalore Central came the Hyderabad Central. And then it just kept growing from there. Apart from our established formats like Big Bazaar, Pantaloons, the Food Bazaar and Central, which I've discussed with you, we have created Two dozen formats that capture every need and aspiration of consumers. We now operate across 10 lines of business. Food, fashion and footwear, home solutions and consumer electronics, books and music, health, wellness and beauty, general merchandise, communication products, e-tailing, leisure and entertainment and financial products. In most of these businesses, we operate at least two distinct formats. One for the value segment and the other for the lifestyle segment. The vision for us is to deliver everything everywhere to every Indian customer in the most profitable manner. Just reading that makes me feel so overwhelming. But then understand something. Um, uh, they've been developed, keeping in mind the urban and semi-urban customers. Remember India 1 and India 2. But there is still a huge population, which is the rural India, that is about 55% of the total private consumption. And there's no retailer who's been able to tap into that. So there are multiple ideas in this book about how they went ahead uh, how they wanted to go ahead and tap into that population as well. But I want to circle back and focus on a constant question, which is, 
how can we get an even larger share of the customer's wallet? The key to success in retailing is in getting customers to come back to your store again and again. With pantaloons, you made a small beginning, then came Big Bazaar, Food Bazaar and Central, followed by many other formats that cater to almost every requirement of our customers. Yet, the question needed to be asked once again, how to induce more consumption. They observed every single gap and tried to create a vertical or a business that could serve the customer. And that led to multiple other businesses being launched. Um, so he tells something about brand that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, brands are a product of imagination. A brand is an idea and if translated properly, it can fire a customer's imagination. I love that. A brand is an idea and if translated properly, it can fire a customer's imagination. Therefore, each brand needs to be developed on a fresh canvas. The Indian market is grossly underbranded, and there is a lot of opportunity to conceive and create new brands that cater to the Indian aspirations. Looking at all of these formats, these multiple brands really led me to ask a question to myself, hey, what is the core competency of Kishore Vyani? Is he spreading himself too thin? Is it too many things for him to handle and juggle? And that is where this entire chapter on core competency was here but i i didn't understand it fully yet i haven't grasped it completely but i want to read it out for you um hopefully you'll grasp it better and let me know and explain to me better uh, i'm often asked what is our core competency some companies make only cars some make only steering wheels and some make only ball bearings and most of them do a good job out of it but how does a retailer sell insurance run restaurants manage private equity funds and charge brands for airing their advertisements on lcd screens within his store all of these are done by uh, future group the notion of an organization having a core competency in manufacturing a particular product is a legacy of the last century it must have fitted in well at the time henry ford spoke about model t which <laughs> any customer can have a car painted any color that he wants as long as it's black it is a different world today where ideas and imagination drive organizations to success. The Indian economy today provides numerous opportunities to in almost every business. The notion of core competency, therefore, can no longer be defined in terms of a single product or service. It has to be defined in terms of knowledge, ideas, and intangible assets. Whew, that's a very interesting demarker. So here, here's how where he answers it. Our core competency lies in understanding and delivering to Indian consumers. We won't make steel, neither will we build cars or set up large petrochemical complexes. But wherever there is a direct customer interface, we will try to capture some value in some form. Over the years, we have gained significant insights about the mind of the Indian consumer, a deep understanding of their emotions, needs and aspirations, and how we can connect with each one of them. With this strong knowledge base, we think we are in the best position to capitalize the incredible consumption opportunities. So, his insights into Indian consumer is his core competency, is what I understand so far. The bedrock of all the businesses built by Kishore Biani is built on relationships. And this is what he thinks about it. I think the emphasis on building and nurturing relationships is a very Indian way of doing business. Unlike in the West, our society is based on values like humility and sharing. We are good at building relationships. It is something that comes naturally to us. And this is where Anuj Puri comes in again, uh, who's the consultant with all his real estate deals. He says he doesn't like getting into a protracted negotiation. Instead, he wants to build a long-term relationship. Even if the person quotes a slightly higher figure, he accepts it, much to the surprise of others, including his own employees. Once when I questioned 
his magnanimity, he explained, if I'm going to develop short-term relationships, most of my time will be spent on meeting new people and starting afresh with them. Of course, if the price is unreasonable, he immediately walks off without getting into any discussion. But this belief in building relationships has given him an edge in most real estate deals. The market quotes Kishore a different price than what it quotes to other retailers. In this case, developers quote a realistic price because they know if they quote an absurd figure, he will not get into a negotiation at all. At the same time, since he is not someone who brings down the price to the last rupee, he is often the first retailer a developer approaches with a new property. That is fascinating edge to have by not being <laughs> a tough negotiator. While we are at relationships, those who work with him have a nuanced perspective because they are much more closer to him. And this is the other side of relationships once you end up growing. This is again by another colleague of his that shares uh, the best part about working with Kishorji is that he can recognize a good idea and he will get it done the moment you show it to him. There will be absolutely no waste of time. He can be really rude and completely rubbish an idea or he can come up with something like this is the best design idea in the world. He speaks in these superlatives and once he gets excited about something, he is completely taken up by it. It is a childlike quality and his impatience and restlessness ensures that things move. Initially, I used to be taken aback by strong responses. Over time, I realized that with so much work, he didn't really have the time to indulge someone. He isn't a person who gets into any kind of sweet talk. He is frank and upfront with his opinions and has his own way of winning people over. Now we get into the pantaloon way where he really evolves into respecting design and builds design into every single aspect of the organization. And, and here is how he defines design. Design is a user-focused prototype-based development tool that can make our organization adapt to the fast-changing external environment. Building a design-led organization requires creativity, a deep understanding and empathy of human behavior. It also requires the skills to synthesize different and often conflicting trends and ideas. Now, the reason why he took up two design thinking and a design-led organization is because of... So, it suits Kishore and his way of approaching business and building businesses because it's not structured with policies, procedures and planning to the last detail like his other contemporaries approached business, but it's much more fluid, has the discipline and still gives you the freedom to institutionalize creativity. And designing is a lot about prototyping and that has pretty much been the default route that Kishore has taken with all these formats. Uh, he is more on prototyping by him. Prototyping has played an extremely crucial role in everything we have attempted. Most outsiders admire or dislike us for one basic thing, the frequency with which we launched new businesses or develop new formats. Few realized that behind these risks were two simple rules that we followed. One was to always have a backup plan ready. Most of the time, we did not know whether an initiative would succeed, but if things went wrong, we knew we could cut our losses fast and move on the backup plan. The other rule was prototyping. Every initiative, every concept or format we launched always went through the prototype phase. We built it on a small scale and opened it to a customer interface. We then watched and learned from how customers reacted to it before we scaled it up. Any initiative at an organization, however big or small, it must follow these two rules. Again, protecting the downside and failing as little as possible. And the second is to prototype. Design thinking is inherently a prototyping process. Once a promising idea has been spotted, one can build on it with drawings, models, stories, or even a film that would describe a product, system, or service. 
The aim during this phase is to elicit feedback before it is taken outside the organization and exposed to a small set of customers. These models are not expected to be perfect. Instead, they need to go through constant adjustment and improvement based on suggestions and feedback. When one rapidly prototypes in this way, one actually begins to build the strategy. This process then allows an organization to unlock one of its most valuable assets, people's intuition. So essentially, design is about creation and destruction. A good designer constantly innovates, creates and then destroys to create something even better once again. Design-led organization thinking has really brought together all of his approaches in a way that makes sense to the larger audience. And I really like the prototyping idea because it's reflected once he starts the first Big Bazaar store away from the market, away from the competitors and experiments, refines prototypes and then scales it up everywhere. Does the same with Central Mall and all the other formats. It really talks about how he is able to cap the downside and also prototype in the smallest and the best way possible, get the feedback, tweak things and then move forward. This is like the classic MVP before MVP became a thing. He later builds an entire organization by merging two design firms that they have worked with constantly in parallel and create something called as Idiom in Bengaluru, which is very fascinating. I don't want to get into the details of it, but it is fascinating to make one organization, which is the entire future group with all the formats, being the trigger point for ideas, concepts, prototypes, and then creating another organization, backing them up, supporting them, giving being their anchor client, and then giving them these ideas so they independently incubate them, look at it from objective eyes, test it out, refine it, and then bringing it back into the bigger organization, the mothership, and then scaling it. I find that idea fascinating, and I think um, he really has a way to get the best people to dream big, especially in India, sometimes by making them envious, sometimes by bringing in, by poking their ego, or sometimes just showing them a bigger vision. Whatever it takes, he has a way and a knack to get people together and to get them working. And today, EDM is doing really well. It's one of the largest design firms in the country. Another concept that um, KB is really institutionalized is scenario planning, which is also part of design thinking. So scenario planning builds upon the original entrepreneurial power of creative foresight. We build on hypothetical market scenarios and create our plans of action. We look at how the external environment may change, what disruptive technologies may emerge, how customers are going to evolve, what can be the changes in policy and regulations, and what kind of competition will develop. Having identified these, we look at how we can react or influence each or any of the factors. The next step is to design our strategy in a way that helps us create positive future scenarios. This is a classic way to anticipate what's going to come next and then to jump first, be the pioneer there. In simple terms, it is just having a nose for opportunities. The other tools like storytelling that also is delved into in this book and utilizing other fictional stories or made-up stories to really communicate specific aspects of a policy or a procedure throughout the organization here are the values that I want to read. It's part of a two-pager document at the group and it goes like this. It's all in the genes is something we often say when we describe a person and if organizations are living, breathing entities, then they too have their own genes. These genes are embedded in the organizational design, its people, the human dynamics, its incentives and the way people work within the organization. Since individual behaviors determine an organization's success over time, we decently thought it was time to understand what our organizational genes are, 
how these have developed us reach where we are and how these will move us to a common objective. We spent a good amount of time introspecting about what makes the organization the way it is and we came up with the following, the pantaloon jeans. We like being simple and we like simplicity in our ideas. Simple ideas help us accomplish big tasks and overcome challenges. Speed is the sense of everything we do. We do plan and use numbers and data to make informed decisions, but we do not get into exaggerated planning or overanalyze things. We do not like to slow down or stop. We like to learn while we execute and to learn we have to take risks. We may make mistakes in the process, but as we keep learning from our mistakes, we never repeat them. We like thrift. We don't like extravagance. We don't like to flaunt fancy cars or gadgets. We want to lower costs for our customers. And we do it by continuously bringing down our own costs of operation, planning in advance, and tapping cost-efficient resource. We believe that customers are always right. Customers are the reason we are in business and we learn the most from them. We actively watch them and try to understand their articulated as well as unarticulated needs. And we like to offer them products and services even before they express their need. We like to think in terms of the majority of people. We do not like to be exclusivist in our approach towards customers. We also like to take into account the diversity in our country and design our customer interface according to local tastes and preferences. We take pride in our core values of Indianness. We believe India is emerging as a different country. It is, it is a different era and it needs ideas that are uniquely Indian. We believe India will show the world how great things can be achieved differently and we like to be the thought leaders in driving this change. We believe in ourselves. We believe in our organization's ability to think differently and, and thereby achieve what many others think impossible. We like to foster a culture of innovation. We like to use both sides of the brain, the creative as well as the analytical side. We do not like to blame others or external factors. When faced with roadblocks, we like to introspect and find out whether the problem is with our organizational design, our human dynamics, or our processes. Our efficiency depends on our persistent will to improve. We like to think positively in every situation. We like to believe that there is always a promise hidden behind each adverse scenario. We want to take advantage of every situation. We believe that the future will always be brighter than today. We like building and nurturing relationships with everyone who comes in touch with us. We like to grow with our partners. We like to grow with the society and community we operate in. We love to rewrite rules even as we retain our values. He is, he's very particular about his personal life and I really admire that he uses the time of Diwali to introspect as a business person. Every Diwali, I look around myself to find out whether every family member of mine is content and happy. Uh, I visualize each one's situation, put myself in their shoes and see if I would also have felt good in their place. To me, it is also time for my own appraisal. And in his own private daily routine, he keeps it really simple. I leave my home by 9 in the morning and when I'm in Mumbai, I'm always back home before 9 in the evening. Socializing and partying is not my cup of tea. And if you realize, he also works on Sundays and he works when he travels as well. I have a highlight around that where his daughters are bitching about him. <laughs> Exploring and studying uh, shopping malls and hypermarkets, even when they are traveling. Uh, however, as he has grown, I think the biggest challenge has been to maintain the relationships the closest to him. And here's what he says about it. However, the biggest casualty is often the personal relationship. The casualty of becoming so big in business is often the personal relationships with friends and acquaintances. People I have known for decades have begun to think that I'm too busy and avoid calling me. Close friends think twice before dropping in at my office unannounced, lest they disturb me. Such presumptions can be extremely disturbing at times. 
Uh, he has this he has this very ridiculous concept about time pass for him he thinks now that we are on this earth all we are to do is to time pass and some of us choose a career some of us choose to devote it to family some of us choose to devote it to the society and in his case he has chosen to devote it to being an entrepreneur <laughs> i was want to quickly touch on it and then move ahead <laughs> it's called the time pass theory it goes like this i believe that we all come to this world to kill time <laughs> things only kishore vyan can tell and get away with in a published book therefore we pick up some activity that we like doing and call it our profession i call this the time pass theory i'm an entrepreneur i work to build a business and organization but what i'm essentially doing is trying to spend the time i have in this lifetime every morning when i'm busy getting ready to leave for work or some meeting i'm doing it not because i have to do it i'm doing it because i will not have much else to do through the day we all get busy in our profession so that we can enjoy the time we spend at work and perform something that we think is productive some people choose teaching as a profession some people choose to be sailors some choose to be professional writers and through this work life of ours we like to create our own world we make our own definitions of success and failures of victories and defeats and we use these not only to judge our own selves but also to judge others without ever realizing that what we all are doing is basically digging holes and filling them up yet i have seen so many people take their lives too seriously not realizing that what they are essentially doing in this world is time pass <laughs> um this is why rejection is so critical for a founder in the mid 90s when we tried selling our branded trousers to a large retail chain they were rejected after having built a nationwide chain of franchisee stores we had to close it down even in the recent past some of our retail concepts didn't turn out the way we wanted but we were never discouraged by any of these all these experiences gave us some amount of learning and we used it to improve our strategies and build better businesses similarly my attempt at making movies wasn't successful at all and it was a humbling experience but i would not be what i am if i had not made these movies it's failure is part the course and that is why the small paragraph makes so much sense most people however are unable to acknowledge their oversights or mistakes i feel it is crucial for an individual to be prepared to laugh at himself recognizing that one has made a mistake even in a small way and learning from it it is the first step towards success absolute failure actually happens when one stops trying to do new things it's about total lack of conviction in one's own ideas and aspirations and it's about giving up and i don't think i will ever reach the state of absolute failure because i'm not a person who gives up at least not without waging a war remember he's come from the deserts he won't give up easily now he talks about the mental mentors he has had uh, in the form of books in the early chapters of the book i had discussed how it is not easy to find mentors or role models to pursue one's dreams i did not have any real role models or mentors but it was from reading books magazines and newspapers that i formed my own mental role models learned about business and shaped my outlook towards life in fact most of the ideas expressed in this book are in many ways influenced by what i have read in all these years this book will be incomplete if i did not also talk about some of the books that have influenced me now before i tell you about the books that have influenced me all these books that he has listed in the book are listed in the show description so a good way to support me and the podcast is if you use the links in the show description to buy the books from amazon there's also a wish list that has all the books and you can buy it at a single click that also helps support the podcast so on retail a book that has had the maximum impact on the way we do business is of course sam walton's made in america However there are very few books on retail i haven't 
red, which means it's pretty much read every single book available on retail. And amongst his favorites is Howard Schultz. Pour your heart into it, how Starbucks built a company one cup at a time. There's also Arthur Blank's How a Couple of Regular Guys Grew the Home Depot from Nothing to $30 Billion. There's also um, Leading by Design, the IKEA story. There's also Marvin Trobs, like no other store, The Bloomingdale's Legend and Revolution in American Marketing. While these are all Western books, he also mentions Indian books, which I want to read out for you. One specific that really stands out for him. I've also read my fair share of autobiographies written by foreign and Indian entrepreneurs, but no book strikes to me more than Varghese Kurian's autobiography, I Too Had a Dream. Kurian's story is of a genuine Indian folk hero. He proves that if one has the conviction and ability to unleash the power of ordinary Indians, one can turn any dream into reality. In terms of its sheer relevance in the current Indian context, the book easily stands out in comparison with what I have read on Indian businesses. Throughout the book, Kurian reiterates that the biggest asset of India is its people and states. We have glorious examples in our country of what our people can achieve and have achieved by working together. Kurian isn't shy of pointing out the disturbing truth. The truth of India is that we have no respect for Indians, for Indian efforts and for Indian successes. It is sad that all the issues that Kurian faced, the opportunistic attitude of multinationals, lack of public leadership, bureaucratic bottlenecks, continue to be the biggest challenges India faces. However, what this book proves is that even after 50 years since the Kaira Cooperative Union was formed, the basic tenets of success pretty much remain the same. Trust in people, belief in oneself and pride in one's country. I love that and I'm happy to share that the next episode in this 10-part series will be covering the book on Varghese Kurian, which is I Too Had a Dream. So stay tuned for that. A few more books mentioned are futurist writer Alvin Toffler's trilogy Future Shock, uh, The Third Wave and Power Shift. There's also Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And there is The Alchemist by, of course, Paulo Coelho, Richard Barks, Jonathan Livingstone Siegel, which was actually used as a metaphor throughout the company to communicate a specific message. There's also Anthony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Within. They all are books that he has stuck to and all of them are listed in the show description. Now this last few bits reiterates his perspectives of looking at entrepreneurs as Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva or the creator, preserver and destroyer. Every organization needs a Brahma, a Vishnu and a Shiva. A creator, a preserver and a destroyer. For an organization to grow and keep pace with the changing reality, it needs these tensions simultaneously. What happens with many organizations is that after they attain a certain size, the preservers take over and stagnation sets in. I consider myself to be a creator and destroyer first. I never really had much of the preserver instinct in me. To begin with, every three years, we have destroyed our existing organizational design. Let me illustrate how we created new things out of this destruction. We started off as a garment manufacturer and subsequently launched a few brands. The business at that time was focused on the fashion segment and for a brief period, we called ourselves Pantaloon Fashion House. The next step was to establish our own retail chain for our fashion products and slowly thereafter, we built multiple retail businesses. Reaching out directly to consumers required a thorough understanding of different customer segments. For us, gathering this knowledge was the prime focus. It would prove to be the biggest weapon at our disposal 
in an environment where everything else was temporary and transient, our quest for knowledge had to be methodical and systematic. So we formed the Pantaloon Knowledge Group and created a knowledge office within the company to act as the key driver and assimilator of information. A vast repository of insights and understanding on retail and Indian consumers helped us understand both the articulated as well as unarticulated needs of customers, set new trends and exceed the expectations of our stakeholders. In 2006, we took the next big leap. With almost a decade of retailing, we realized that the time was right for us to leverage the knowledge and create a company based on ideas and innovation. Our earlier organizational design was meant for running a sustainable retail business, but the emerging opportunities allowed us to look at the entire consumption space. Future Group was the outcome of the new thinking that has come into the organization. We have destroyed the earlier structure to create a new design that can serve as a platform for multiple ideas and businesses in the consumption space. That's the destroyer in me. The creator can be seen in the unique designing of the organization. The organization is now based on scenario planning, design thinking, innovation and ideas and new areas of research like memetics. Neither do we look at the past nor do we base our decisions on what has already happened. We look at the future and create a lot of scenarios for the future, how the organization can look like three years down the line, what are the challenges that can come up, etc. Then we develop an organizational strategy and try to create favorable business scenarios for the future. The intention is to fix a problem even before it appears and leverage an opportunity before anyone else. We move ahead and he talks about leadership and he has a very different perspective. Uh, again, <laughs> this man is filled with perplexing paradoxical perspectives and one among them is how he looks at delegation and abdication and here's what he thinks about delegation and abdication and leadership i believe that leadership is not about delegation leadership is about abdication and there is a significant difference there with delegation one still tries to retain the overall supervisory control of the job but that isn't good enough it creates an army of preservers whose only aim is to preserve the status quo and follow predefined rules set by the leader. To drive innovation and entrepreneurship, a leader needs to abdicate most decision-making and executive's role to his team. Only then can a leader move on to a higher level and achieve something bigger and better for the organization. This belief of allowing team members to take decisions has now cascaded to every level in our organization. And that is one of the very important reasons why we have been able to get into so many businesses and manage to grow each one of them at a fast pace. Understand, abdication is his way of giving power to others to destroy capital more than anything else. And because he's given them that amount of trust and power, they go all in. Here's a beautiful summary from uh, one of his partners, Samir Sen, is the managing director of Future Capital Holdings. Prior to taking over this role, in January, he served as a managing director in Goldman Sachs and um, he was roped in by KB. And here's his perspective, which is completely without a filter and that's why I like it even more. Kishore is a man of contradictions and his management style reflects his personality. He loves using oxymorons and he is best described by using them. He is a shy aggressor, a visionary operator and a non-confrontational warrior. It is therefore understandable why at first his management style is very confusing. He has a timid handshake and will not look at you in the eye, but he will make extremely bold statements and aggressive decisions. He can take you to 100,000 feet with his vision and perspective, yet get very focused on a tiny detail at the ground level. He only talks of growth and building something great, yet will be sharply focused on the PNL. 
which is profit and loss and hates losing or wasting a single rupee he'll be consistently critical and shoot down almost everything you say yet you will find a lot of your thoughts being implemented when needed he'll also emerge as your most ardent supporter to someone who comes from a more structured and consistent background which is goldman sachs where samir was before he joined future group kishore is a difficult man to understand yet all those who know him for a long time will agree that he has made a huge difference to them both personally and professionally he teaches you to dream the impossible and then believe that you can achieve it when you do you get no credit or acknowledgement but a reminder that he told you so his philosophies such as go with the flow are his theory of time pass sound strange and uncommercial it is easy to poke holes at them but he will live by these theories and time and again they have proved to be precise and commercial for an awkwardly shy and private man his understanding of people and their psychology is quite scary remember i told you about this earlier i'll repeat it for an awkwardly shy and private man his understanding of people and their psychology is quite scary he is able to read people within seconds and adjust his interaction accordingly not in a manipulative way but in a manner where he is able to go up or down to their level without compromising his character at the end of the day one has to look at the outcome kishore has managed to build a large organization that has a strong culture of creativity he has recruited talent people at all levels including the more senior positions and somehow may, may have a contradictory management style but it is these contradictions that attract all sorts of people and that is where i leave this episode uh, i highly recommend you buy the book it happened in india and go through it and grow through it like i have done and before i leave it really helps if you go down if you're on spotify or apple podcast go down and give a five star review and let me know how you liked it what was your number one take away from this episode and also if you can please do buy the book from the link in the show description it helps and supports me and the podcast with that go and make some galata